You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. We wake up to a new normal today and life is slowly grinding to a halt. Now masks are becoming the new normal. Americans are facing a new normal, one that may include losing their jobs, losing their income, and even losing their health insurance. I don't think we get back to normal. I think we get back or we, we, we get to a new normal. It's time to reject the new normal. Now is the historical moments of time not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. It's time to reject the Great Reset. It's time to support the People's Reset. It's time for the Greater Reset. From January 25th to the 29th, journalists, activists, researchers, and advocates are hosting the Greater Reset Activation a five-day event dedicated to offering an alternative to the World Economic Forum's top-down, centralized, authoritarian vision. Our desire is to help all people find community and liberty by providing practical steps and knowledge for co-creating a world that respects individual liberty, bodily autonomy, and choice. The Greater Reset is the world's collective response to the World Economic Forum's initiative, The Great Reset. We invite you to join us for five days of discussion about the diverse opportunities available for those who seek to live in harmony with humanity and the planet while respecting our innate freedom. Each day is dedicated to a different domain and provides solutions to the WEF's vision. Day one is dedicated to the Agora and decentralized economics. Tuesday the 26th will focus on health and education. Day three will focus on nature, permaculture, and regenerative agriculture. Thursday the 28th will highlight the liberating side of digital technology, including encryption, blockchain, and decentralized autonomous organizations. On Friday, January 29th, we will end the event by showcasing examples of intentional communities, freedom cells, and community organizing. Don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear from some of the most powerful speakers in the world with a focus on solutions. We encourage everyone to organize local watch parties in your area using freedomcells.org. Also, find out more about the Greater Getaway in-person event in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Visit thegreaterreset.org for more information. Here we are, once again, day five. Welcome back to the Greater Reset Activation, everyone. Those of you who are in person here in Zihua and everybody all around the world who's been tuning in, thank you guys. This is Day five of six. Let's make it clear right off the bat, John. Today is not the last day. One more day on Sunday. Bonus day. There were so many great folks that wanted to be involved. We added another day. I'm looking forward to Foster Gamble on Sunday. He's he's a powerhouse, that guy. We're, gonna, we're gonna definitely going to have some really exciting speakers. Sunday, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But today we have a focus. I think this is kind of a good way to wrap up the Monday through Friday section of what we're doing here. This is after we've talked about food, we've talked about technology, we've talked about uh, the economy, we've talked about our health and education. 
Now it's kind of how do we bring all that together? And so today is very much focused on community solutions, community building, community organizing. We're going to hear from some people who have experience in the fields of intentional community building. We're going to hear from some people who have some skills and experience in the area of organizing your communities. All of these bits of information are going to be valuable for everybody who is actually at the stage where they're like, you know what? Living in the city, living in the suburbs, living in the country, wherever it is, I want to start forming a community. I want to start, as you were saying, John, as we've been talking about this week, exiting and building from the system. Yeah, for sure. And the community is so important because a lot of the problems that we face as human beings comes from government. And the Great Reset, what they aim to do is merely centralize government quite a bit more on the global level, supranational with regional governments. And they want to add some technology to it as well. And I think one of the big problems that we have with the status quo, which is everybody on Earth existing under one or multiple centralized, coercive, hierarchical institutions named government, is that it's all one size fits all top down. You know, you can move to another country, but all of them are controlled and there's relative degrees of tyranny. And I think that we need to start competing with this idea that government is the only way to organize society because it's been quite problematic thus far. And I think it's responsible for all the division that we have in the world, because if your party's not in power, then you're going to have policies forced upon you that you don't appreciate. And that's we need to come together and we need to balkanize and decentralize. And that's what we're going to be talking a lot about today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to remind everybody who is listening, especially I, we just had somebody saying they were still awake in the Netherlands to watch the beginning of this today. So shout out to, I believe, Mark from the Netherlands. Uh, I do want to say everybody who who missed yesterday or hasn't had a chance to watch it, we did go ahead and get all of the archives uploaded to Float and to our Odyssey channel so you can hear all of our speakers from day one, two, three, and four now. And thanks to another amazing speaker, we do have about half the, the talks translated to Spanish, not just transcribed, but this person took the time to record the audio for it. Wow. We have who volunteered and sent in a German audio translation of Rosa Corey's talk. So if you're listening from anywhere in the world and you want to help translate, we would love to get all this content you know, available internationally. So please reach out to us uh, through our website and you know, we'll make it happen. But yeah, we've got some Spanish, plenty of English, and one German translation so far, and we'll see what else we can get. We've also got our shirts for sale on the website if anybody wants to rep the Greater Reset movement that we're building here. And if you want to support our work in other ways, we're really happy to be here. And as we announced last night, John, we're going to be meeting again in May. May 25th through the 28th is the next time the World Economic Forum is getting together. And they're planning on actually organizing in person this time, which I think is more of a reason why we should be organizing in person. Yeah, we got to keep it in person. We got to stay connected. We got to build those relationships we talked about earlier in the week how the World Economic Forum is concerned that people are losing trust in those institutions. And as people should, because they've been betraying people left and right, but we can find trust. First of all, trust in ourselves that we're on the right path, that we have the right principles and that we're aligned with those principles and then trust in our community. And it doesn't have to be even though it is a global network. Right. What we're encouraging is to link up and to build strong bonds with those people in your local area and to hang out and be together with one another in person. We can't lose sight of that because there's going to be more and more digitalization. There's going to be more and more virtualization of just about every facet of life. And we got to be the ones to resist that by just hanging Absolutely. out. 
That's an extreme thing now that nowadays building community. So, I mean, let's, let's do it, man. Let's go ahead and dive in. I'll let you take. I'm breaking up a little bit. Uh, all right. Well, uh, the lovely Rebecca is going to be coming in here in a few minutes at six ten. Um, I, I wanted to share one more thought. Um, I have witnessed a lot of people become frustrated and disillusioned with the state uh, or lack thereof when it comes to critical thinking of our fellow human beings. And I just want to give some folks a little bit of strategy and a little bit of hope. There's this awesome essay by Albert J. Nock, who was a 20th century libertarian thinker, and it's called Isaiah's Job. And in this essay, he explains the book of Isaiah and the story of the remnant versus the masses, right? So everyone's discouraged that people want to force masks on everyone. And if you go to a store and you're not wearing a mask, you get dirty looks and there's so much division and anger. And these guys support this candidate. These guys support that prime minister, president. And, and everyone just seems like they're stuck in a trance, right? And when folks that are quote unquote awake, right? Cause you never fully wake up unless you reach Nirvana, I guess. And that's what we are striving towards, but the baby steps, right? You try to talk to these folks and they think you're like, nowadays, anything that you bring up against the status quo and everyone assumes that you're Q here in the United States. I think that was part of the PSYOP in my opinion, but it can be very frustrating. And I want to give you this hope that at the end of the day, the masses, which have been defined by Plato and others as the lot of people on this earth that just go along to get along. They just eke out a meager existence. They're happy. They're chill. They're satisfied with the status quo. And often they're incapable of understanding principles like the non-aggression principle or the concept of voluntary exchange, or they can't even grasp the possibility of peacefully coexisting harmoniously with our fellow human beings absent the state, right? Well, the masses, even though they vote and they seem like they're in control, they never change the course of history. No, it's the remnant that are the ones that change the course of history. And in the Bible, the Lord told Isaiah to go spread the message, to spread the gospel. And he came back frustrated and he said, nobody's listening to me. Nobody cares. He said, just continue to do the work that you're doing. And the people that care, they're going to find you. The remnant, those peace people that are going to pick up the pieces of society and rebuild anew when it comes crumbling down. And that's what we're doing with the Freedom Cell Network. That's what all the free thinkers, all the radicals, visionaries, entrepreneurs, permaculturists, all the people that we've heard from this week. We're not waiting for the whole system to collapse in on itself. We're going ahead and building something better right now. So don't lose hope when you try to talk to people and their eyes kind of glaze over. The important thing is to find the others. Right. And we've created a map that can help you to do that. Freedomcells.org. Find the others, get organized and focus on solutions. So uh, Rebecca's in the next room. We're ready for you. So I'm going to introduce our first speaker today. She is an amazing human being that has this wonderful ability to just light up any room that she enters with her radiance and joy. And she is extremely passionate about intentional communities and eco-villages. She's visited many. She has really put a lot of energy and effort. We're in the process of building our own thing this year. 
And she is going to share some insights and some advice and some beginner's tips and hopefully some inspiration for all the folks that are out there saying, hey, let's do that. She says, so you want to join an eco village or build an intentional community? Join the club. But it doesn't just have to be something that we talk about. It's, it's time to actually do it. So without further ado, let me introduce the one, the only Rebecca Powers, Perma Powers. I guess it still says John Bush on the screen, but my name's Rebecca, and I'm here to speak with y'all about intentional community and eco-villages. There we go. So I also have my little furry friend here with me. His name's Agora. Very appropriate. He kind of blends into the background, um, but he'll be joining me too. <laughs> So you want to start an eco-village. Um, join the club. That's the name of this presentation. And I do actually have some um, pre-made slides. So hopefully, uh, Ramiro, if you could pull those up, hopefully we can use that as a kind of starting point. There we go. So the reason I named this presentation, so you want to start an eco-village, join the club, is because I have so many interactions with people expressing their deepest desires and passions about living in community and being surrounded by people that they love and growing their own food. And they talk and talk and talk, but there's not a lot of action. And you have to wonder why. And we'll go through that a bit today. Um, and also some tips and tricks to overcome those challenges. So, um, First of all, I'd like to introduce myself. As I said earlier, my name's Rebecca. I am very passionate about eco-villages and intentional communities. I initially started my career in the free market think tank um, industry and quickly realized that the most impactful way to change the world was to build an alternative that's so freaking cool that 
you can't help but want to be a part of it. So to me, public policy changing laws really wasn't doing it for me. And I realized maybe we should switch directions and try something totally new. Um, So, you know, you kind of have to think about why do you have government in your life in the first place? And it's to provide all these services and to have um, reasonable access to resources. And the reason I'm so passionate about eco-villages and intentional community is because on a much smaller scale, that's precisely what they're doing. Um, So that being said, when I began to embark upon this path, I really started to visit a lot of eco-villages and intentional communities. And I ended up actually starting a full-time career with a company building a agrihood, which is a neighborhood around agriculture. So I'll dive into that a little bit as well. And that's what I'm up to nowadays. Um, And we have another 68 lots that we're building. So I'm pretty busy with that project, but I also am Uh, you know, just really wanting to focus on building more communities like this that have regenerative agriculture, that have net zero energy infrastructure, um, that have buildings built out of cob or straw bale or all these amazing building alternatives um, that are really providing a way to tap back into Gaia um, and nature and building with nature and not against it. Um, always have been impressed with, you know, growing your own food. There's so much freedom, financial freedom, spiritually as well, in growing your own food and having that, you know, connection with what you put into your body from not only a spiritual standpoint, but also for your own health, um, instead of all those processed, you know, foods and walking down the grocery aisle and you have all those, you know, shelf life of, five years and it's like, should I really be putting this in my body? Um, So I've been very inspired by growing your own food. Um, Also, the opportunity to have ultimate liberation, which is detaching from the centralized electric grid and providing your own power um, through solar panels, wind energy. So this is, in a nutshell, what I'm really passionate about. And I believe that when enough people begin to live this lifestyle, we can become our own rulers because we will be providing our own power source, our own food production, and our own, um, you know, decision-making processes amongst one another. And we'll have the community and the support and the resources that we need in order to flourish. So here's what I'm up to right now. Totally unassociated with this presentation, but just to give you a feel um, of actually walking the walk, I am living at this community, I'm invested full time in this project. It's called Village Farm Tiny Home Community. It's really close to downtown Austin, Texas. So here, um, this little section is the first 48 lots. It started in 2018. It's on the perimeter of an existing RV resort, and that's you know for the zoning purposes and how to actually pull this sort of thing off with a commercial site plan and getting it approved by the city. It is zoned as an RV resort. Um, The tiny homes are legally classified as park model recreational vehicles and they're 400, well, under 400 square feet, 399 typically. So what we're doing now, we just built out another 20 lots, um, which is pretty much already sold out. It's facing our certified organic farm, which is stewarded by Greengate Farms, very well known in the local community here in Austin, Texas. Uh, very, very dominant with, you know, providing produce for the local economy. And um, 
We are actually in the process of building out phase two and three, another 68 lots here. That should be ready in another year. And then we've got a, probably two or three years to go with the whole process being done um, because we're also going to build a general store, a bistro, and it's all coming together pretty quickly. We're about to do like probably 40 fruit trees to build out a fruit orchard. We're starting a gardening club. So I not only do the sales here, but I also do the customer care. I live on site and I'm very involved in this process. And it's provided me a lot of firsthand experience with what it takes for land development. Um, and also a mission of sustainability, regenerative agriculture, and intentional community in a sense. You know, I've never lived somewhere like this where you know all your neighbors and you have that deep connection and love for your neighbors. It's crazy when people visit who are living in apartments and they're like, I hate my neighbors. They're so loud. They're awful. And I'm just, woo, I can't even imagine that because I love the people that I live next to. That's, there's something really special and powerful about having that trust in your local um, community and the people that you live next to and, and having that support network really. This is a funny meme. I'm sure that you guys have seen this on like Facebook, Instagram, but how many times have you heard someone say, let's just go buy a plot of land and have six of our closest friends have their own tiny homes or have their own cob structure or a um, earth ship or a yurt, right? So what I'm going to cover today is a very quick overview of how you can accomplish this goal. So the more people living this lifestyle, the more rapidly we will transition into the new realm of human consciousness where we're not only connected to our neighbors, to the land, the land is the first partner, it's beautiful, it's sustainable. Um, but this is really, in my opinion, what it takes to build a new system that will create the current one, making it obsolete, as Buckminster Fuller says. So let's start off here with the basics. Uh, what is an intentional community? Okay, so Google it. Just kidding. You duck, duck, go it. Um, but if you do some very basic research, this is what will pop up. An intentional community is a planned residential community. It's designed from the start to have a high degree of social cohesion and teamwork. Um, the members of an intentional community typically hold a common social, political, religious, or spiritual vision, and they often follow an alternative lifestyle. So this is like not the nuclear family style community where you drive home from your nine to five, get in your garage, close the garage door, goes down, and you just don't even talk to your neighbors. You're just in your own little world. This is not that. So very alternative. And I think that it's important to emphasize that there's an intention behind the community. Oftentimes, the communities have a religious uh, or, or at least a spiritual, um, you know, maybe we're a Buddhist community or we're a Christian community or um, we're vegans here or we're paleo here. And this is really important that everyone has the intention and the common you know, unity there on, on the purpose behind the entire residential development. So you live here at the intentional community. Here's the bigger picture. And I'm a part of that bigger picture by, particip by participating. 
Um, this, in contrast, is going to discuss, like, basically discuss the eco village. It can also be an intentional community, but this is to separate the two because the eco village really has a emphasis on sustainability and, and regenerative agriculture and the net zero energy aspect. Um, this is really emphasizing the importance of living in alignment with the earth. So an eco-village is a traditional or intentional community with the goal of becoming more socially, culturally, economically, and or ecologically sustainable. An eco-village strives to produce the least possible negative impact on the natural environment through intentional physical design and resident behavior choices. My favorite um, part of this conference this week has been the permaculture day. That was really profound for me. And often when you visit an eco village, you'll see that they're really embracing permaculture principles um, or some, you know, holistic, whole system integration um, where the gardening and every, you know, the, the livestock or lack thereof or whatever it is on the property serves a purpose in an effort to steward the land. Um, so there's two different directions that you can take. Uh, obviously, the easiest, I'm just going to say the word easiest because it is, is that you join an existing community, which I'll break into some examples of how you could find a community. Obviously, we're all very familiar with the Freedom Cells Network, uh, but this is like going to really dive into how you could join a community. And I'll show you two different directories. Um, and the topic and other option of starting your own is much more complex. And I will outline some of the barriers that you're going to inevitably need to overcome in order to start your own community. So buckle up, it's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Um, so if you want to join an existing community, get this on your browser right now. Go to DuckDuckGo, type in ic.org. The foundation for intentional community is the number one resource when it comes to finding a intentional community that suits your needs. And I don't want to get away from the slideshow and mess up all the tech. So I'll just let you guys kind of explore it on your own. But here's a screenshot of what that directory looks like. So when you're going into the advanced search function, you can search by location. It will actually show you so many details, how many people are living there, what is their spirituality or lack thereof, are they vegan, like are there dietary restrictions as a prerequisite to live there, are you accepting new members or what is the you know accepting new member process look like? Do they have internships or workshops that you can participate in? Um, where is it located? Do they have access to the internet? I mean, I went to um, Earth Haven a few years ago and like there was zero reception. Um, I was actually thinking about doing a, um, it was called SOIL, the School of Integrated Learning. But anyway, I was thinking about doing a program there and working from home with the company I was working with at the time uh, remotely. But I, I like, Good thing I visited before just moving there because I had no internet access and I wouldn't have been able to make my sales calls. <laughs> so anyway, that's just to say the directory actually has some very specific information, which I think you'll find incredibly helpful if you're searching for an eco village. This is an amazing place to start. 
Um, you can also search based on the type of community. There's like egalitarian communities. There's co-housing where it's more like an apartment kind of situation. They also have, um, you know, are families allowed with the kids or do they have a school on the property? So these are all really, really important questions to ask. The Global Eco Village Network is another fantastic resource. And as we discussed earlier, there are some distinctions to be made between an intentional community and a eco village. So this directory is specifically focused on those communities that do have an emphasis on sustainability and um, more regenerative practices that are in alignment with nature, renewable energy, that sort of thing. And um, Jen, they do a lot of events. Well, I guess with um, COVID, things have switched up. But even at the beginning of February, they're doing some really um, in-depth live video streams with the emphasis and focus on eco-villages. Oh, I'm sorry. That's actually F, uh, Foundation for Intentional Communities starting that up in early February. Um, but the Global Eco-Village Network tends to have like a meeting usually in Europe um, in the summertime. And they have lots of resources on the website too. And they have some really good partners. So if you were on that website searching through, you'll immediately start kind of networking and seeing other programs that are um, in existence, like Gaia Network is awesome. Um, and they have that resources tab. So you can definitely check that out. Um, at one point, there was Jenna, Global Eco Village Network, uh, North America Alliance. So there's a very impressive network that actually already exists of eco villages and intentional communities. So don't feel like you have to start from scratch. There's actually a lot going on in the world already. And if you want to just kind of you know, join one to test it out. Um, this is, I think, a really good approach, or at least to visit. Um, before I get into the create your own community, I did make another slide, which we'll get to at some point, called New Mundo. So like my story visiting Earth Haven, it was really good that I visited first. And on the program, newmundo.org, it's kind of like the Airbnb of um, eco-villages and intentional communities. So it's like a try before you buy sort of thing, which is a really good idea when you're searching these directories and you're seriously thinking about moving to one of these communities. Um, New Mundo is an option to book through. Or, of course, you could just, you know, contact the community directly. And usually they have some sort of onboarding process to vet new um, community members. So, you know, oftentimes you'll visit and maybe stay for a week and then they'll invite you to stay for a few months and then maybe you get invited to become more permanent partner. Um, it really just depends on the community. So my desire with my career long term is to create a replicatable model for eco villages um, globally. So I'm going to create a blueprint that functions as a model in which people can more easily live this lifestyle and start their own community. So if you're not going to join an existing community, your only other option is to find some raw land with which the, you know, property acquisition is not easy. Um, there's oftentimes deed restrictions. Um, maybe if you're in a hot market, the properties are getting bought up cash immediately and you don't have cash. You have to get financing. Uh, there's different things to factor in like, it doesn't have an agricultural exemption. What are the property taxes going to be? So when you're buying your own community, 
these are the steps, these are the items that you'll want to take into consideration. Um, in addition to this, there's oftentimes rules saying like, you cannot have a structure under 1200 square feet or you can't have more than two families living here at once. So it's um, unfortunate, but that's why a lot of these communities have to be further out from the cities because there's a lot of zoning regulations. And it's kind of hard to do this because the state makes it really challenging to live more in alignment with nature. Like they, it's almost illegal to live off the grid. It's very peculiar um, kind of reverse incentive structures there. But I digress. It's okay. It's not going to prevent you from doing this, but it's just something to be aware of. You definitely don't want to buy a property and think that you're going to be able to do something there without doing your due diligence to research if you can actually do it there. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to join or start your own community, I highly recommend reading this book. <gasps> so Diana Leaf Christian is um, an amazing author. And this book here has so many practical tools when it comes to joining or starting community. Um, so legal, And she really breaks it down. So there's also the... Um, Topic of legal structure, which, you know, is it going to be an LLC? Is it going to be a nonprofit? Is it going to be a land trust? These are all really important questions to ask. Um, what's the ownership model? And that's part of creating the uh, replicatable model is to create a ownership model that provides equity, not only in the housing, but also in your partnership share, which is the land. So then uh, my mentor, Erica Dorn, who studied with um, Buckminster Fuller and is just an amazing human being, and I love her so much. But anyway, she always emphasizes the importance of having shared um, equity. So you have your own individual plot, but then everybody has equity in the remaining acreage. So there's an incentive to steward the land, to make it more valuable. When you go visit some of the existing communities, you might notice they're not in, some of them are in disrepair. They're kind of impoverished, not in very good, um, you know, condition. And so it's really important that there's ownership so that you have an incentive to steward the land and make improve upon the land. So if it's not beautiful, it's not sustainable. Um, and that I think is a very important ownership model. She suggests a condo association as a legal structure, but I've also looked into other options. And if you're watching worldwide, then I don't, I'm not going to get into them because it's just pertinent to the United States, but uh, you might need to hire an attorney, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, the infrastructure. So it's very costly to install septic tanks and um, electric wire, you know, the all of this, the water, it, you do really want to be tapped into the city. So if you can, it makes more sense to do the upfront investment of having rainwater catchment, solar panels, um, and alternative energy and resource, renewable energy, um, rather than tapping into the grid. And hey, if, if things do go south, you know, at least you have that peace of mind that you're providing your own energy. It's better for the environment. So you've got a lot working in your favor. Um, community agreement. So I love this concept by Randy Langford. He created something called a dynamic agreement. So it can change. It's not static. It has provisions showing how you would amend it or change it because we are human beings who are not perfect and life situations change and time in time things might adapt and that's okay. Like that's totally fine. So 
in a vision statement, not only would you say the intention behind the community and how you're going to have it structured and what we're going to do for conflict resolution, but you would also want to have, in my opinion, a dynamic agreement, which can change in time. And it outlines, like, if there's conflict, here's how we're going to resolve it. We are going to use holacracy or we are, we have our nonviolent communication tactics. And if there's a conflict between two residents, here's how we're going to dispute the issue. Um, dis- <laughs> Agora snoring. <laughs> so yeah, decision-making method that goes back to like sociocracy or holacracy. How are you going to communicate with one another? And if someone is going to become a new member or perhaps a partner in the community, it's really important to make sure that everyone is trained in sociocracy or holacracy so that they understand Uh, conflict resolution and because inevitably conflict arrives. So there has to be a consent, not necessarily a consensus, but there has to be a agreement that everyone's on the same page and that, you know, if there's a problem, you guys can jive together and kind of ride out the wave instead of getting toppled over um, and that you can surf, you know, and figure it out. Because when there's more than one family living, even in one family, there's conflict sometimes. But when there's more than one family, there tends to sometimes be disagreements, and that's okay. But how are we going to collectively agree and you know move on, move past it, and maybe even grow from it and become stronger? So these are all things to consider when you're creating your own community. Um, again, this book is fabulous. I could never explain all of this in 30 minutes or less. So please read this book, um, support Diana. And this is one of the figures that I really like. So if you're serious about starting your own community, this really has a nice outline. So organize your group, create your vision documents, research the real estate market in your desired area, research zoning issues in your desired area, learn your financing options. That's another thing too. I think it'd be cool to organize everything on the blockchain because now you can do that with like deeds and um, you know purchasing properties. It can all be done on the blockchain now, but also we could have a way that folks can finance it. So wouldn't it be cool if you could buy with crypto the land? I mean, these are all possibilities and there could like, you could tokenize the property and there could be all these incentives like permaculture credits and stuff. The um, options are endless. But anyway, I digress. Develop or renovate your property as needed. A lot of work goes into fixing up properties. And, um, you know, maybe you want to organize a perma blitz or get the local community involved. Definitely setting up, you know, some cottage industry and opportunities for people to earn where they live. These are all really good ideas. Um, Research communities and the decision-making method, choosing a location, where is it going to be? Um, And of course, conducting your property search so that you can actually buy one and then get it started and figuring out the community finances and how it's going to be organized legally. Uh, this is the program called New Mundo. So David Casey is awesome. Um, you can probably find some of his speeches online, David Casey. He runs New Mundo. Um, this is a great opportunity to find retreats, um, properties to visit, and then you can kind of like be there for a week and see if you're vibing on some things. Maybe you're not vibing on others. And it's good to try things out before making such a huge decision about where you live. So New Mundo, New Mundo, New Mundo is awesome. So check that out. And I will also recommend just a few months ago, I participated in the first um, Whole Systems Network Grounding Your Village course. So my friend Chloe, who is formerly with the Austin Permaculture Guild, has now started this new nonprofit with her partner, Leone. Um, And they are 
basically vamping up to get this new um like register you know register to do this program it's not totally new they've done it before and i can attest to how incredibly fabulous it was the networking alone was worth it for it does cost money but it goes toward their group of course um and it's worth every penny so if you seriously want to start a community or join a community you've got to check out the whole systems network and the course is actually called grounding your village eco course um, I'd be happy to share the link to this presentation in like the Telegram channels and such or on the description for all the videos because I did hyperlink to the program. Um, but basically, Chloe and Leone are just really awesome. They have top notch speakers and they are incredibly inspiring individuals who are not only taking this information and digesting it, but they're really breaking it down in a very easily digestible, understood manner. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. Like, so you do your Zoom calls, your video calls, you get to meet everyone who's in the class. They have an amazing presenter on different topics like buying land or, you know, figuring out the sociocracy or the group decision-making processes. And it's invaluable information. It's just really, really, really worth every penny. So I can't speak more highly of this program. It's it's really, really incredible. And if you're like, I don't know if I can swing the cost. This is a little too much for me right now. They also have options just to buy like one video on one topic. Um, so that I think would be a really good option for everyone to check out. Um, and again, if you follow these groups on um, their websites and their newsletters and such, it's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, if you are serious about creating or joining a intentional community or an eco village, I really think that it's important to do a lot of research uh, before you, you know, jump into the decision because this is a new alternative lifestyle that is very different than the cultural norms um, that many of us were raised with. And in a lot of ways, we're actually retrograding back to what it was, because before there was hierarchical governance and all these systems, we were able to organize amongst one another and kind of like tribes, really. So, uh, yeah, so let's bring it back to tribe life and community. And I think that... Um, everyone here has the potential to really live more in alignment with not only what we're thinking and speaking about, but really to center themselves in every decision that you make, everything that you buy. It's all coming right back to the local community or you're building up local businesses and you're living in a house that's with net zero energy. So you have total alignment toward the future we want to create. Thank you all for your time. Peace out. I appreciate you. And um, yeah, my name is Rebecca Powers. If you'd like to find me online, um, please do. My email is contactrebeccapowers at gmail.com. And I know we're not all into YouTube nowadays, but I do have a page, Tiny Homes by Rebecca Powers. So um, if you like what you heard today, find me there and you can keep up to date with all of my videos and content. Thank you. Gratitude.
Hey there. Welcome back. That was great. Thank you so much, Rebecca. She is, isn't she lovely? Isn't she lovely? I just wanted to um, piggyback in on what she had to share. Um, guys, the Freedom Cell Network is really geared towards these alternatives. And there's a lot of people in the Freedom Cell Network that are interested in building intentional communities and eco-villages. Just today, the Central Texas Freedom Cell Network Telegram group, they started a group about going in and doing cooperative land purchases. So it really is more attainable than you think if you have four or eight people with you. A property you can get for 200, 300, 400K, divide that up, really just have to put the down payment. Then you can move on an RV or or a tiny home for 40K or 20K for an RV, and you can start building your own stuff there or get an existing structure. It doesn't have to be some far off thing that we all dream about and wish about. We can really make it happen, and it's community that will help us to do just that. All right, I'm gonna pass yeah. it back to Derek. He's gonna introduce our next speaker. Yeah, thank you, John. I just wanna to add to that to, you know, Rebecca showed in her talk the book. Creating a Life Together, and I highly recommend that book, Creating a Life Together. Uh, some of you know that I've been in Mexico since last March, actually working with a group of people looking for land, trying to build an intentional community, a project that we call the Conscious Agora. And the, the true hope is that there will be a network of these free communities all around the world, not just in one place, whether Mexico, the U.S., Europe, or elsewhere. But we've been using that book, Creating a Life Together, because it's just so detailed, so much valuable information. I highly recommend it to everybody. And so as we start talking about building communities, one of the things we need to figure out is how do we make decisions? And we've, we're probably most familiar with in our kind of day-to-day -day life with the idea of majority rule. Like let's think about governments, right? There, when there's an election, if more than 51% of the people say something, then the rest of the 49% get forced to go along with it. We call that democracy. Some people call it mob rule. Um, whatever it is, that's the system we seem to be most familiar with. Majority rule, 51 plus percent, it's, this is the decision that's going to happen. There's also things like consensus where you go around and have discussions and understand each person's critique and their concern until you come to consensus and everybody is in full on agreement. Another way to organize is something called sociocracy. And our next speaker is going to tell us about that. Uh, Ted Rao is the author of Many Voices, One Song, I believe is the full title, and also involved with the organization Sociocracy for All. Tonight, he's going to tell us more about this. Please welcome him to the stage. Hello. Thank you, Derek. So as Derek said, my name is Ted Rao. I'm part of Sociocracy for All, which is a nonprofit, and I'm sitting here in Massachusetts, and I actually live myself in an intentional community. Uh, I have 80 neighbors that I also dearly love, five kids that run around here, and it's pretty awesome. So yes, yay for intentional communities. And I've lived here for 10 years, and that's also about how long we've been using sociocracy. So that's the governance method here. My community's old. We've been around since before my time. In 1994, this community was founded, and it started out using consensus. So all decisions were made with everybody in the room and trying to figure it out. And it took uh, a long time, and it wore people out. So then we switched to sociocracy, and that's what I want to talk about now. Let's see this slide. So the first thing is we want to have organizations. Why? Why do we want to have organizations, right? And the typical thing is that people want connection, purpose, belonging, right? They want to have a sense of being part of something. 
But we also start organizations because we want to do things because there are people who need stuff, you know, like they need housing, they need electricity, they need food, you know, like whatever we use, it typically comes from somewhere and it's typically an organization and not just one individual doing it. And sometimes people think that one has to be on cost of the other, but really the idea is that we get both together, right? That where we, where we spend most of our time or a lot of our time, that's also where we get our sense of belonging and our sense of purpose. So what helps us best to bring those two together is actually having a structure. And some people think that structure is something that is in the way, right? But I think that structure is actually something that helps us, right? Because also nature uses structure. It's a structure like it's part of self-organization, right? We build these patterns. What we need is alive and and patterns that um, support us in in being better versions of, of ourselves and being connected to each other. And I think that sociocracy is a kind of structure like that. When we have a meeting together, we have to figure out a lot of things at once. And I just want to sort of really flesh that out real quick, just so that we know what kind of animal we're dealing with, because governance, decision-making in groups is really, really complicated, or at least complex, because there's so many different factors at play. So one is, for example, the content. If, for example, we're in a meeting, there's content to figure out, right? We have a problem that we need to solve. And it's a problem that we probably have never solved before. Otherwise, why would we be talking about it? So that's already hard. Then we have humans in the room. There will always be interpersonal dynamics. So that's also in the room, and it's something that is reality, right? We can't just ignore it. So that will always be there. And then there is process, who talks for how long, about what. And so so all of those things need to be figured out somehow. And all those three things happen at the same time in real time, right? And that makes meetings so hard. And then governance is even more of that. It's also deciding who decides sort of of outside of the meeting and so on. So governance is really hard. And I think it's better to have something that supports in doing it instead of just winging it, because winging it typically leads to the... So it's the tyranny of structurelessness kind of stuff. Real quick about the word sociocracy, because it is a little bit of a funky word and also not my favorite, but the word actually uh, has been around for hundreds of years and it was invented at the, or coined at the same time with the word um, sociology. And the idea is very simple. It is this, those who associate together, govern together. So instead of like in democracy, the masses deciding, the people who actually come together to do something together are the people who decide for themselves. So it's completely self-governed, not only self-managed, but even self-governed and self-steering kind of system that you can build together with a group. Um, Very quick, the version of sociocracy that we're using today, really in the current form, was put together uh, about in the 1980s, so it's been around for quite a while, Um, and it comes from Europe, from the Netherlands, and it was inspired by all kinds of roots, and really that's the version that we're using today, and it is also a version that there exists some flavors of, but really I see sociocracy as like a big umbrella with many different flavors, which is totally fine. And many people combine it with other things like non-running communication, not drag and dreaming, you know, it happens in community and so on. So restorative justice, all of those things often come together. So now what is sociocracy and how does it work? And 
it's one of the, the systems where a lot of pieces sort of click together in a really smart way. So I'm going to show you all the pieces and hope that you at least get a little bit of a sense of how it would all work. I don't have the expectation that you walk around and you're able to do it, but there's plenty of resources online that I can point you to at the end. So the basic idea is you start with a group of people that want to do something together. And they have whatever this is symbolizing here, the work that they do, okay? They're doing something, like let's say they're on a farm or they um, have some sort of nonprofit doing things or any kind of business, a co-op, whatever it might be. And they make agreements. They might be making agreement, and I'll talk about that in a moment. They might be making agreement on the topic that they're working on for the whole organization, but we'll look at that. And often, like when I use the words agreement and policies, I use them interchangeably because policy is not something that falls from the sky or comes top down. In sociocracy, policies are something, are agreements that we make with each other for ourselves. And any kind of circle, so that basic team of people will also manage themselves in terms of where do they write their notes, how do they write their notes, who facilitates, how often do they meet, and so on. So they are completely like their own little self. And two things are important about these. First of all, they need to have a sense of who they are in terms of who is a decision maker in the group. If that's too loose, typically groups get in a little bit of trouble. So we it doesn't mean that we're like closing the membership. It just means that we know who our members are at any given point in time. So that's a piece. And then the other one is that we know what this group is doing. And that means also what they can do. So for example, the aim here describes what they are basically promising that they will do for the organization. I very often use gardening examples just because they're so tangible and most people can relate to them, different from business or like special community kind of um, uh, comparisons. So when we have, for example, a garden, one piece of the work would be to, let's say, figure out what kind of plants we're going to plant. And that, like managing, managing, like planting plants and I don't know, harvesting or something like that would be, for example, a good aim that describes what the circle is doing. The domain would describe what they're in charge of. That's in particular important when we're dealing with budget things or just stuff that we own together. We need to figure out who's, who is just allowed to move what around. Otherwise, we're going to have a little bit of chaos that is actually not helpful. So that's pretty clear when we have one circle, but how does it all together if you grow, right? Because one big piece of the, of the idea here is that we don't grow by just adding more people to the same circle. That's also not typically how we grow in nature, right? Like if you have a cell, it doesn't just grow and grow and grow and grow, but instead we differentiate and we sort of work more in a fractal system with more replication and so on. So this works more like a, like a natural system in that then we have a circle here, but then we have two other circles that are doing different things. And what might that be? So let's stay with the gardening example. So let's say this is the plant circle. What else do we need to run a community garden kind of thing? We would say, oh, well, we need something like infrastructure. Let's say they deal with the water and the fences and the tools, something like that. I'm just making things up. You could 
divide it up in the way it makes sense to you. And then let's say these people, they are figuring out membership questions or, for example, managing the website so people can come and join. So now each of those circles has something that they do and they're the experts on it, right? They build the expertise and they build the um, belonging and sense of trust uh, with each other on that topic. So they really um, organize that well. Now, how do we get a sense of the whole? And we do that by something that we call linking, which just means that from each of these circles, two people will be part of this circle in the middle that we call general circle. And what does a general circle do? So a general circle doesn't typically decide much, except with one exception. Typically what they do is just make sure that there's flow of information between the circles. Because you can imagine there might be a case where planting, planting a certain thing, like let's say a plant that needs a lot of water compared to other plants, then that would impact these people's work, right? Because we were saying they provide the infrastructure here. So there has to be some flow of information so that people don't get surprises and so that we can just figure out what the best synergy is between the things that we do. So as you see here, these people are the same people as them here, and then those two and those two. So now we have two people, for example, these two, that are at the same time members of this group and members of that group. So they make when there's a decision made here, they are a part of that. When a decision is made here, they are a part of that. And of course, correspondingly here. So here's where the flow of information happens, but they also make one important kind of decision. And that is deciding who decides. And that's kind of interesting because sometimes we might have a topic that we haven't really thought about and we don't actually know uh, where it belongs, like who's going to decide it. So then we would, in this situation, have this new topic and then it lands here. They are like the incoming mailbox for all the new topics. And they say, okay, uh, that's a new topic. We don't actually know who's going to take care of that. For example, let's say they want to write a grant or something. Oh, who does that? Okay. And then it comes here. And they would talk about and say, like, grant writing, let's see, infrastructure, maybe planting, not so much. Maybe, maybe they would want it, okay? Or they might form a new circle. They could do that, too. But let's say they decide that these people take care of that. And then they decide, and we'll talk about that by consent, that now this circle holds in their domain also grant writing. So they are now also in charge of that. So that whenever something is needed, we can just go to them, and they know that they're in charge, and they've got this, okay? The um, interesting thing about that is that you can see here that if this group decides to give grant writing to this group, then they can't just dump that topic onto that group. But instead, these people are actually there when that decision is made. So it's the combination of consent decision-making, which I'll say more about, and the fact that we have these links that are part of both groups that make sure that one group can't overpower another group so that we have nice balance there. And in addition, the good flow of information. So that's the idea of the linking here. 
Then let's see, we also, in your typical organization, we would also have something like an advisory board that we call the mission circle, because what they do is they um, make sure that the organization stays true to its mission. While these people are more busy doing stuff, they say, okay, is that really where we want to be heading? Or what are we going to do in the next five years? Or what are we going to do with, you know, in our response to climate change? What's our, what's our stand on racial justice? Like whatever it might be that is more like, not so much in the weeds, but really paying attention to, okay, where we're heading. And then, same logic applies. There would be two people who are full members here and full members here because we want the, the mission to actually impact what is actually being done. And we want what is actually being done to also show up in the reflection on where we're headed, right? So we need some good flow of information between these people and these people. Now, every circle can form sub-circles as much as they want to. They just decide that. So if this group is being formed, only they can decide that here on their own. So it's not that everybody has to run to the people in the middle and say, hey, can we form a sub-circle? They just decide that. And I always imagine it like a root where, you know, like one root decides that they form a smaller root and that then there grows a smaller root and so on. So the whole thing can go, in theory, you know, thousands of layers um, because you always have that fractal kind of um, pattern. What you would need to do then is really define well what you do and what they do so that you don't step on each other's toes and every group is really fully empowered to own that piece of the work that they do. Uh, let's see, where am I? So now, one thing about um, how, how a circle works on the inside is that we would want to have like people in charge of things, not so they can boss other people around, but just so that we have the full clarity. Because in our uh, experience, it's really useful to like put a person in charge, for example, for the linking roles that we saw, the roles that connect to the next higher circle, if you wish. And high, I really mean in quotes here, because high often is what people connect to, like power over kind of systems. But I already said that's not the case, so I always put the higher in quotes, so that people don't get caught up in sort of the the pre, um, yeah, the notions from, from you know, what what things are like in the world that we grew up in. So it's different. So one can also say in the next broader circle, but then typically people don't know what I mean. Anyway, so we have people that are like the designated people who are connecting to the system, to the rest of the system, right? The, the circles outside of us. And we have it going in both directions. But we also have other roles, like the person who facilitates and the person who writes notes. Those are both very important positions. And we make sure that we switch through those like roles a little bit. So whenever we select somebody, we only select them for a certain amount of time. Because, you know, then after, let's say, six months or so, we want to look at it again. We're like, do we still want the same person? And we might decide together that we still want the person for another round. Or we decide to switch it up. And I've seen circles that switch every six months and really make sure that everybody gets a turn. And I've also seen circles that for the 10 years are the same leader because there's absolutely no reason to not having been leader. And everybody says, we just want him again. He's doing a great job. So it's really just the circle's choice, whatever they do. Anyway, but where I was going here in terms of um, empowerment, so we also can basically package 
certain kind of operations that need to be done, like, for example, bookkeeping or website or customer support or a certain tool that one person really knows well. Like in my community, we have a guy for the tractor, you know, he knows how that works or the snowplow, he knows how it works and he takes care of it. Okay. And whenever we define a role like that and we're really intentional about who's filling that role, then we really empower that person fully to take ownership of that. And that typically feels really good and liberating and clean for two people. So let's see, a quick word on how that works in terms of who selects these people. Typically, we make sure that both circles, so if we're talking about this person, we make sure that both circles give their okay for that person in the role. Again, we don't want any circle to overpower the other. And then we create a pattern like this. I mean, also, of course, with more sub-circles if you want to, but we have this flow of information through the whole organization because we basically unleash the information and we can now freely flow. And actually, one thing I want to show you because that's cool is if you imagine that this is like a rubber band, okay? Can you see that? Okay. Now we can go to this kind of thing and you can see that if we pull it out, we still have the whole circle. And what we do is we pinch it in, look at it again, we just pinch it in so that we have small groups that can focus on things. But the underlying structure is still that everybody is equal. And when we talk to each other, we tend to do that by actually really listening. And the way we really listen is by making sure that everybody gets a turn. And what we do there is that we make sure that we talk basically in one by one by one by one by one. If we're, for example, brainstorming, we talk one by one by one because that way we can make sure that everybody is heard and the people who don't talk as much don't become this afterthought, right? When you have like groups where half of the people are talking, half of the people are quiet, and then after some time we go like, oh, uh, how about the people who haven't talked yet, you know? That's what I mean by being an afterthought. No, like from the get-go, we say everybody's voice matters and we're going to talk one by one. It doesn't mean you're going to be forced to speak. You can always pass. But at least you're actually invited just like everybody else. And we don't forget about the more introverted people. So now if we make a decision, and Derek has actually referred to that, right? We all know certain kinds of decision-making. For example, we know that sometimes let's say the boss designs, okay? Majority rule is the decision-making method that we're all very much familiar with. That means the majority designs. And then we also, and I named it here with the tyranny of the minority because very often when you have a decision-making method where you um, have the expectation that everybody needs to agree, what happens is that if one person says, no, I don't like it, then nothing moves forward. And that's actually also a kind of decision-making method where it's where the balance is out of whack because those people have a disproportionate um, level of power by just being able to block everything and throwing a monkey wrench into all kinds of um, uh, processes. So what do we do? And the decision-making method that we use is consent different from or slightly different from consensus, depending on how you define consensus. I'm not going to go and talk badly about consensus. I just know that consensus isn't always 100% clear and people use it in different ways. So consensus 
might be the same thing as consent to you, or it might not, depending on how you define consensus. But it is very clear what consent is. So I'm not going to talk about consensus. I'm going to talk about consent. What consent means is that if there's a proposal and we're trying to figure out whether we approve that proposal, there are different options. We could say, yeah, that's good enough. Yay, that's what I wanted. Yeah, sure, we can do that. I'm willing to try it. No reason not to, something like that. That's what consent means. I don't care enough. It's actually also consent. Because the only reason to object would be that we say, no, hold on. This is actually going to create like an issue here. We're going to harm ourselves and harm our aim if we do this. And then you would have to show and explain how, right? And the cool thing about that is, first of all, it's very clear because we should know what our aim is. We do know what we came together for. And ideally, we have that written down and agreed upon. If not, we're in a little bit of trouble. But if we have that aim, we know what an objection is. And the really coolest thing about it is that if somebody says, hold on, this proposal isn't good because it harms our aim, that means we're all in the same camp because we all care about the aim. Right? That's what brought us together. So there, there, is, there are no camps of the people who are before, the people who are against. We are all for the aim, and all we need to do is figure out how we can get that kink out of the proposal that is messing with our aim. And that changes the whole discussion, because all of a sudden we're all in the same camp, and all that we need to do is figure it out together. And that's actually very possible then. And there's a practical thing here on how we do that. Um, so one is that we need to know from everybody that they consent. So often that is done in a round and sometimes also just by showing the thumb. And as soon as everybody in the circle is a decision maker accepts it, then we're done. And we have this certain pattern of doing it just to make sure that we're really making a decision that we all understand. Because if you don't understand a decision, how like what good is your consent? And so we make sure everybody understands the proposal, one round. And then we make sure everybody gets to speak real quick, another round. And then we make sure we ask everybody for consent. And if we have consent from everybody, we're done. And if not, then we hear the, the objections and figure it out together. And that's typically not as hard as one would think. Let's see. Oh, I have one little example about this in how we're typically not so clear and just the mental clarity of um, consent decision-making really, really helps. And I'm gonna show you how. So, for example, hold on one second. Uh, so, for example, if we have this kind of dialogue, let's go to the art museum on Saturday, and the other person says, what about the errands we said we would do? It's completely unclear whether this is person saying, hold on, I don't understand your proposal yet or whether this person is just airing an opinion, or whether that person is saying, hold on, we can't go to the art museum because it's against the agreement that we had made. So this kind of statement is just completely vague. And this kind of process then, by like um, really figuring out what are the questions, what are the reactions, and do you actually object, is really helpful to get those, those unclear statements completely crisp so that we understand each other. Because it might be that all this person was doing was just by asking a question and this person gets super upset because this person thinks that it's, that it's an objection and starts getting defensive, right? 
That's how very many of our conversations actually play out. And it's not helpful. It doesn't help either of them. Okay, I've already sort of alluded to this, but when we select somebody into a role, for example, the role of the webmaster, the role of the circle um, convener, or the circle of the person, uh, I mean, the role of the person who is taking care of the toolshed, we always make that decision by consent. So we're not just going with the person who uh, raises their hand first or the person who forgets to say that they're not it, right? We're going by the person who we think has the trust from the group to do that role for a certain period of time, which we define. And we make sure that we make an intentional choice, which is what all this process is for. That actually looks long, but it's very, very sweet. I highly, highly recommend it. And um, it is really an intentional choice that we can do within a few minutes. Who uses sociocracy? So sociocracy is really used um, all over the world, really. And it has sort of its typical, typical kind of areas of where it's used the most. Um, so for example, I'm just gonna show you a few things here. This is an amazing project. Um, you should look it up. It's the neighborhood and the children's parliaments in India. And they are aware of sociocracy. And you can see here, they use circles that are a little bigger of what we would typically do. But the, what they do is they organize people into neighborhoods and make sure that they can really self-organize. Um, and they have hundreds of thousands of circles like that. It's amazing. Anyway, they use sociocratic selection processes, for example. This is a community, I forget where, but an intentional community. This is actually in a university in Europe, um, an early circle diagram. This is a co-op, whatever do we have here. This is our own nonprofit um, a while ago. And then what do we have here? A nonprofit that is doing mindfulness work for kids. This is a community in Canada. This is a school in the Netherlands. You see where they have like, and like almost, and this is a talking stick that's at the same time a microphone that they make sure to go around the, the, um, the room and make sure they do the round and everybody gets hurried, gets included. This is a worker co-op. And this is just a little bit of a um, here, little fun thing of just basically the um, organizational structure of the organization that I'm a part of um, with um, a dozen or so people in paid positions. Um, like I do this full time and then um, 170 members all over the world. So you say, of course, as you see, of course, we're using our own system ourselves. A little bit about people who want to learn more. So sociocracyforall.org slash training has a bunch of things, and this is literally a screenshot from there. And what we do is we always offer each level in different modalities. For example, you can just sign up for a workshop. That works, of course. But what we actually like a lot is we have a set of videos that are pre-recorded so groups can get together wherever you are, right? You don't have to fit into our schedule. And in groups of four to seven, maybe eight people, you can just watch those videos. And it also gives you exercises that you can do. So you can switch back and forth between doing group process um, and then watch, watching a video together and going back and forth with that. Or just have your team do that. And then the same thing accordingly in facilitation and in non-binding communication, which we're also spending a lot of time with. We have all those except for that, which is in development. And then, you know, it goes along 
like deeper and deeper as people want to do. The last thing here is um, that was already mentioned. This is a handbook. Um, it's used as like the reference kind of thing by many people about sociocracy. Um, and it has many of the things that one needs and it's all very practical with lots of examples and, and diagrams and so on. If you just want to get like a super brief um, kind of overview start here on our website is a good place to go. Uh, also, if you, for example, want to share it, people have no idea what it is that's preparing them well and, and giving them overview. And then there's one brand new article that we actually just published this, um, this week is something um, about just sociocracy and basically self-organization and anarchism for those who might be interested in that. Right? And that's it. That's what I have. I'm going to put those things into the chat. I just need to know how All to right. do it. All right. Thank you, Ted. Thank you so much. Let's get a round of applause for Ted. All right. Well, please do check out Sociocracy for All. We recommend everybody checking that out. And I recommend going back and watching his talk and looking at his slides and his presentation. Sociocracy seems to be a really kind of interesting way to start organizing communities. And it really works well with the Freedom Cell Network, what we're promoting. And we want to encourage people to look into sociocracy to see if it works for your freedom cells. And now we're going to move to a panel. John, you ready for this? I'm excited for this. Yeah, I'm super stoked. We have a few all-stars in the Freedom Cell Network. There's over 15,000 people participating, but really what's driving a lot of the growth are the leaders and the organizers. And, you know, we, tr we try to do like a leaderless movement, right? But naturally, there's folks that lead, and then there's folks that are attracted or inspired by those that lead. So the three people that we have here today are most definitely leaders and organizing. And a good thing about the Freedom Cell Network is it allows a lot of people uh, the opportunity and an excuse to break out of their comfort their comfort zone. And if they're introverted, then they got to go out and meet people and talk to people and recruit people and organize people. So it's, it's great self-improvement stuff as well. So I'm going to introduce a couple of our guests and Derek's going to introduce the other. So uh, first, I would like to bring on Nicole Sauce. Nicole is from Tennessee, and man, she is is doing a lot of good work there. She already had her whole shtick is community, right? She does Living Free in Tennessee podcast, and she was already in the community, already had a huge community organized there. Then she learned about the Freedom Cell Network, and that really attracted her as as kind of a something to get behind and an organizational structure. So she's going to share with us a lot of her insights and they have a solid community there. I think folks are watching next door or something. They're all real close to one another. They call it the holler, which maybe we, I don't even know what that means, but you can tell us here in a sec. So thank you for joining us, Nicole. And uh, Derek said, introduce the other folks. Hello. Is my hey, mic hey, working? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you sound great. for being here with us. And uh, let's go ahead and bring on Johan. We have Johan co coming in from India today. Johan, what's up, brother? Good to have you with us. It's early in the morning in India, and he's been up waiting for this. He's just been doing phenomenal work. I've known him for almost, I want to say almost two years, maybe, or at least a year by now. And in the short time that I've known him, he's just been a powerhouse of activism, also taking on the Freedom Cells concept, making lots of waves in India, making the media, really 
especially during the time of COVID, showing people how to get organized. So we're excited to hear from Johan. And uh, then we're going to bring on our final guest for the panelists. This is, of course, how to activate your freedom cell. And Lisa, who's coming in from Oklahoma, she has also been a really powerhouse when it comes to the freedom cells concept. As John said, we don't have any leaders per se. We just put out ideas and encourage people to get organized wherever they're at, whatever part of the world, to use the website to find each other. But Lisa is probably one of the first people that heard me speak about this as far back as I want to say 2016, but definitely 2017. I did a speaking tour in the U.S. a couple years ago, went to Oklahoma, met her there and talked to her and a few of the local community about freedom cells. And I came back in 2018, talked to them about freedom cells. And here we are 2021 and, free, and, and Lisa's freedom cell in Oklahoma is one of the most active in the country. And it's just been amazing to see her consistency in her growth. So thank you for joining us as well, Lisa. Thank you, guys. Thank Looks you. like she's wearing the shirt oh, from, your, from your tour there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, represent. <laughs> that is the tour shirt. Awesome. <laughs> Still have it. All right, John, yeah. you want to start us off with the questions? Yeah, let's just do um, just a quick intro. If you would just share with us how you got involved in the cause of liberty and then when you learned about the Freedom Cell Network. I think we already got Lisa's story on that one. So let's start with Nicole. How did, how did you get involved with the cause of liberty? anarchy, voluntarism, whatever you want to call it. And how did you learn about the Freedom Cell Network? Okay, so the really cool thing here is if if the neighbors come over and say hi, which I just told somebody to go get them, one of my visitors this week is the man who turned me from being communist to being a liberty-loving person, and I went straight into working at a think tank. So I started out studying to be a school teacher and the school system was broken. And then I decided, well, I'll fix it. And I started getting all into how the government worked. And I figured out all these solutions that would work as long as I was in control. And the, the problem that I was solving that really flipped me was mass transit in Portland, Oregon. And I realized that if I had to make all this, the decisions, it wasn't fair. So I came to Liberty because it's a much more fair way to uh, grow the world, right? You, you, individuals make their choices and they're responsible for their decisions. And it's like magic. It works, right? So that's how I came into Liberty. I spent 14 years in the free market think tank movement, realized that the efforts there are more like the little Dutch boy with his finger in the dam, stopping the march of ever more government clause coming into our lives. And I thought, I'm going to get out of here and empower people to choose freedom. And so I started a podcast called Living Free in Tennessee and came across Jack Spierko, who then linked you and me, John, on the Unloose the Goose podcast. And that's where I found Freedom Cells. And I thought, well, great. We've got this awesome community in Tennessee. The Freedom Cell structure is a wonderful idea. Let's see what happens if we put those two things together. Excellent. Excellent. I like hearing that, uh, that evolution from Communist to libertarians, quite a stretch there. So I'm glad you didn't just stop it like Democrat or something. All right, uh, Johan, what brought you to the cause of liberty? You're quite the activist up there making some waves, pissing off the Indian government. How'd you learn about the Freedom Cell Network? Yeah, I, I basically got into this uh, through the Thrive Movement uh, website. Like I started researching conspiracies very early on. Around uh, five years ago, I actually started uh, on the path of truth, like trying to figure out what's really going on in the world. So I saw this documentary called Thrive and there, I mean, like we have Foster Gamble speaking tomorrow, right? So that was my uh, entry point into voluntarism, anarchism, agorism. So that's how I got to know about people like Mises and Murray Rothbard. So the entire like uh, 
Austrian economic tradition was introduced to me back then as a solution. And it, it kind of makes sense because like intuitively I, I wanted uh, people to have free will and like, you know, to exercise freedom. And it's something that always resonated with me. Like I was always an anarchist. I just couldn't put a word on it. But then coming across the idea as I finally could describe what I always believe. Right. So after that, basically like following Derek, I got introduced to agorism. Like I didn't get introduced to agorism through Thrive Movement. I actually heard the word for the first time and then uh, Free Thought Project and, uh, you know, places like that actually actually through the memes also played a role in kind of really helping me to understand the importance of the solution of uh, liberty so that was my entry point into like if it wasn't for Derek I, I probably would have come to know about agorism a lot later and he helped me to like kind of understand a lot of the solutions side of it practically yeah excellent yeah it's all about solutions and agorism is definitely it kind of like cuts to the chase it's like let's just go ahead and build what we're all been dreaming it's kind of like the, it's, the, it's the practical application of anarcho-capitalist yep. ideas yeah we don't have to philosophize anymore let's build all right lisa what about you how did you come to the cause of liberty and then uh, share a little bit about how wh why the freedom cell idea resonated with you so much sure well i think like a lot of other people <laughs> Ron Paul was kind of the gateway for that. I was involved in the local grassroots campaign for Ron Paul, and I met some really awesome people there, and that kind of opened the floodgates to all that. And then I found, um, I think you and Derek, uh, somewhere on social media, uh, found out about the Conscious Resistance and then his tour, and um, he spoke about Freedom Cells, which sounded amazing. like. You know, that's what our um, local group had been talking about, you know, that we needed community and we needed to build our communities up like that. And uh, when I got on the, the platform, I'm like, this is great. You know, put your pin in the map and you can meet other people. And um, so when Derek came through with his tour, we, you know, gathered a few people together and listened to what he had to say. And I've been promoting it ever since. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people learned about me from Derek bros. This guy's just really out there and it's great because he has a big following, but he's really on point with the message as I'm sure you guys know. All right. I think Derek's got the next question for you. All right, guys, let's talk a little bit about Lisa was kind of getting into this answer already. So we'll start with you, Lisa, more of your local group. So for the people who are watching and those who are going to be listening to this later who don't know what Freedom Cells is, of course, we invite you to visit freedomcells.org and get some of the introductory material. But basically, it's getting together in decentralized groups of eight people as local as possible. And sometimes it's difficult to immediately get local to, like, say, your neighborhood. I know Nicole mentioned the neighbors. Sometimes you're working with people who are in your city but on the other side of town, and that's where it can start. The goal, though, is to get increasingly local. So let's focus on that for a minute and talk a bit about some of the community members that you've met that have become a part of your Freedom Cell Network and your, your local community. And I'll start with you, Lisa. Okay, sure. Uh, well, right after the Ron Paul campaign ended, uh, we had a group of people who wanted to keep that going. What what we did at headquarters is we had um, all kinds of people come in and speak um, about a variety of topics. We even had a you know a, a history teacher, beekeepers, you know, just all kinds of things. So to keep that going, um, they formed another little group called Liberty on Tap, and we started meeting once a month um, at a local place. You know, with a had a beer because uh, we have lots of local brewers. So the Liberty on Tap, that's how that was born. And we just kind of kept that going. And that's been, I think, going on eight years now. So we met a lot of people through that who were receptive to this concept. 
Um, but then, um, you know, I put my pin too. I got on the Freedom Cell Network and put it in there and just kind of waited for people to come. But we kept talking about it our, at our Liberty on Tap meetups. And then last year, after all this Rona stuff, this when this two weeks to flatten the curve turned into like two months, um, I was, like, you know, getting a little panicky. I'm like, you know, we really need to get back together. So uh, I, I sort of um, brought new life into this coffee meetup that we used to do. So I just created a coffee meetup and um, we had a few people show. I think it was four of us. And then we just started talking about things and we, we brought up Freedom Cells again. And it's like, this is the time, you know, like this is the opportunity to do that. So we kept meeting weekly and we have been meeting, maybe not every week now, but we've been meeting regularly since then. It's almost been a year. So that started attracting other people because um, I don't know, I guess I'm like screaming it from the rooftops and some people started listening mm. <laughs> and paying attention. So um, a lot of the people kind of kind of came through our Liberty on Tap group and then that was just attracting a whole bunch of more people. So our we have our kind of our inner group, our inner core group. Um, but our, at our last meeting, we had nearly, I think we had about 20 people. And that's the most so far in one meetup. Um, and this is like a public thing. I created a meetup uh, for Tulsa Voluntarism and Agorism to try to attract those kind of people to our group. And, and it's working as more and more people are starting to come. So I've created more meetings and like some skill shares and workshops. And it's been working. Yeah, that's wonderful. And did you, I don't know if, I didn't know if I might have missed this part. Didn't you have a neighbor though, somebody like in your own neighborhood that has gotten involved recently? Yeah, um, we had a couple of new people show up to a beat up one Saturday and ask, you know, how they heard about us. And he said, um, I think he heard John on a podcast and got to the Freedom Cell Network and, um, you know, registered there and, and found us and turns out he lives in my neighborhood. <laughs> Wow, that's really powerful, and I, and I appreciate that, Lisa. And I just want to say to everybody again, who, if you're new, just in the week that we've been here, we went from 12,000 members to 15,000 members. We just passed 15,000 members. What? It is, yeah. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> and J John's the first one that told me about this. I think the first time I heard him speak was in Austin in 2015, 2016. Then I started promoting it. We've had a previous version of the website, but as as Lisa pointed to, 2020 with COVID. 1984, all this insanity, people are finally ready for solutions. And that's why we're here. And I think that's what we're seeing. That's why so many people are interested in the greater reset activation. That's why so many people are ready for freedom cells. I think this is an idea that this time has come. And whether we do that in the different ways we're talking about tonight, whether we're doing that on the land or in the city or in the suburbs, we got to get organized, guys. So that's why we're here tonight. Thank you, Lisa. Johan, let's talk a little bit more about you and your local community and just anything you want to share on some tips or just how that process has gone. Because you you have some really great insights that you've shared about how you got things organized and like you had you put together a form for people to who are interested in your group to, to fill out when they first come in. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so initially just, I mean, when I started out, I thought, okay, like, what's the best way that I could mobilize my audience and uh, get the serious people from there who actually want to do something compared to just the people who want to stay in the group. For, so for the there are many people who just like still think it's okay to just talk online and don't really want to do anything. So for them, we obviously have our normal groups like where people just join in from the YouTube channel and stuff. But then uh, I've kind of automated this now. So we have a couple of members uh, like, you know, who are my friends who actually 
send a new send a message to every new member who joins our group to kind of tell them like okay if you want to take action go fill this form and then we have a basic kind of form which doesn't ask too many questions it just asks the intention like do you really want to do something and like couple of other questions and then uh, based on that we kind of get their data and then we actually sort them out in different city wise groups right so that way i mean we've had a lot of people because of mainly covid 1984 right now because before this i remember i i used i used to have a freedom cell like a year before that and mainly that time it would be just a bunch of us you know meeting at my place to watch documentaries or something like that or you know people really uh, just just uh, getting to know each other and actually having a circle that understands what's really going on so it was kind of like a support circle but then once this entire covid thing really kicked off uh, people wanted to do something and especially during the lockdowns and that time when it was really you know forbidden to meet and actually congregate that's the time we actually started having some of our first meetings like so that's how my local cell started at a time where it was like really illegal to meet and like you know if you were caught the cops would kind kind of you know do shit to you like if you were caught i mean that's the time when we had our first meeting and ever since then it's, it's just been a factor of okay like we have a group and it's constantly been growing because my channel audience is constantly been growing the people who are kind of interacting in our circles is constantly been growing so that way we have we're coming to know like more and more people from our local areas who actually understand this stuff and want to do something i've had friends who've been like my friends for a couple of years they're starting to understand some of the stuff now so they're starting to get a little bit involved in that so overall i mean it's just the consistency of like doing it and having a structured way in which you can get people to you know come and join you and i mean i i just want to say it like people have this aversion against leadership and actually you know taking an initiative but most people don't want to take initiative right like uh, so many people we have in our group if if they weren't told or given responsibility to do something they probably wouldn't do it like so i, I would encourage like those of y'all who who do get that passion to lead and of course i think everyone should do it but at least those of y'all that that do it would really help if you guys put yourself out there and actually like you know did your bit in helping to mobilize people because uh, i mean like, everyone doesn't understand the issue or the urgency all the way like we we do get it but then some people are just trying to scratch it and maybe if you give them a little nudge or maybe if you just tell them okay like you know this is what you need to do they'll do it so they need like that push motivation and the building of community also helps a lot right like if it's just an online thing and people never meet it's fine but since we guys have met so much like couple of us you know have become good friends now so having that camaraderie and that social connection also through physical meetings and actually making friends in the circle that that helps to keep the unit together of course there'll be a lot of infighting so from the group we started out with many people like have personal issues with each other but then the cause is always greater right so i mean for any protest or something like people do show up like regardless of the personal differences people do come up yeah so i have a lot of insights to share but i mean just in general i would say the main thing the main hurdle that's stopping a lot of this stuff to happen is people are not stepping up and taking initiative like you know i mean just the example like someone from some area might go to the website and say okay there's no cell out here so i didn't have any cells out here either like most of my cities in my country didn't have it but then once the culture kind of started and once people really start to understand the information there were more people talking about it they like okay what can we do so the the most basic idea that's kind of springs to you is like okay at least i need people around me if if something happens you know those people will be there to support me and then whatever's coming the food crisis the beauty of this is that you just you just kind of have a unit where you can get together right so whatever globalist onslaught we're dealing with it is just that uh, it's not made for a specific purpose like 
your group can kind of work together and you know basically through the power of unity and numbers come together and do things so my goal would be to like grow this to such a scale where you know something happens to someone we all just show up and don't let that thing happen like you know things like that which really need numbers to to make it happen so overall word of mouth like the more members you have this go and start speaking out and actually you know joining people within the group itself so these kind of things have have worked for us successfully in in this in this last year since covid yeah 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 and i mean just you're you're such a wealth of information on this brother so i mean the couple of things that i take away that i think are important that you're right that we shouldn't look at leadership being a problem per se the problem is when it's centralized and it's forced but there are people who are who take initiative and what he's talking about is something i've experienced in my activism and i know john can speak to it as well is that often we have trouble just getting other people motivated. People care about things going on in the world, but sometimes taking action can be more difficult. And so if you're, as he was pointing out, if you go to the Freedom Cell Network and there's nobody on the map in your area yet, take the initiative to start the cell in your area. It might just be you for a while. Somebody else will come along, it'll grow. You know, we need to be willing to take initiative and, and not be afraid. And then the other thing is, I just wanna commend you guys for being willing to go out during a lockdown and still organize and still when your government in India is trying to tell you guys to lock down, you go, you keep going to the streets and keep telling people the truth about COVID to the point that their videos went viral and they were censored all over the internet for talking about masks in India. Mm -hmm. So I just want to point that out, brother. Great work and great tips. Uh, let's go to Nicole now. Anything that you want to share specifically about how you've organized in Tennessee or tips that you'd like to share about getting people motivated locally? Yeah. So, uh, guys, come in. So I'm going to show you a couple of the holler neighbors and ask them questions. Like, were you my neighbor first no. or did you become my neighbor after joining the community? This is the other holler neighbor. It's Nighthawk and Tactical. Uh, they came to this area to live in what's called the holler now because they were already part of the community we were building. And we called ourselves a community of doers and we organized around projects. So we, we were called the Tennessee GSD crew, get stuff done. And we would just come to somebody's house on a weekend and build an aquaponics system or put in a composting outhouse, just do something because none of us like to just sit around and not do something. And that having that trust developed through shared projects really helped. But I think the other thing that we sometimes forget to think about as we're building a community, so there you are, you're an agorist. You find out about freedom cells. You go to the website and there's nobody on the map. That doesn't mean there aren't other people around you. And if you start thinking about the people you interact with on a regular basis, you usually can find one or two people who are either close enough that it'll work in the community that have the right kind of philosophy to really gel or that are, are absolutely on board. And then you just start meeting with those people. But once the community starts, I think it's it's we we take a lot of stress on ourselves about how do I grow the community? The community will tell you how it wants to grow. And I think what was really cool about discovering the the model that John's put together with Freedom Cells is you find eight people for your inner cadre. Those people decide what they're doing, right? Together as a community. And it's really simple. You're not trying to build it into 50,000 people. You just want those first eight people. And if what you have is three people, that's fine. Listen to them. They'll tell you what they want to do to grow. And then as people see you doing things, 
Because you'll be like, hey, I'm over here doing something really cool with aquaponics. And then you share that with the world. More people want to come in and join you and do really cool things. So then next thing you know, you have eight people or 10 people or you have eight cadres that I forget what the word is when it's a what is it? A super cadre or whatever. Anyway, and you just start building it out. What I found to be really awesome, though, about the Freedom Cell website was we had we established a chat app that we all used. And then a whole bunch of people joined in on the Freedom Cell chat. And next thing you know, one of them's like, hey, I got a hiker hostel. You want to get together? And the in-person meetings are so important for developing the trust, you know, the eye to eye trust. And we had 33 people two weeks ago get together while they were there. Knoxville and Johnson City, Tennessee had enough people to, to form the eight person cell. And now I understand, I think it's this coming weekend that Knoxville is doing an event there and they have a ton of people coming. So it's almost like the minute somebody sees you doing something cool, other people are going to join in and do it. Wow. Yeah. I'm just listening to all of y'all in just awe because um, in, back in 2014, this was just an idea. And I had like an inner cadre group, a small group kind of fell apart. And then Derek took the idea and ran with it. And then COVID happened and all the tyranny happened. And now it's this huge thing. And just to hear y'all stories and to see the communities that are being built, it's super inspirational. Somebody in the comments said the Tennessee crew looks like they don't mess around. <laughs> <laughs> And we I think one of the, the homeless Unabomber. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a cool crew too, because you guys with the GSD concept, getting stuff done. Um, yeah. I know there's a lot of overlap with Spearco's community, the survival yeah. podcast, and, and there's a lot of gardening and food production and just getting your hands dirty, which I think is really important. Gardening is a great starter thing to do uh, with your crew. And you know, when it comes to leadership, yes, there are natural leaders and followers. I don't like to use the word follower, but there's natural leaders and then people who flock to leaders. One good tip for folks is to work with your group and maybe through a uh, sociocracy, right? Come up with some goals. Like what do we want to focus on this quarter or this month? And then it's those goals that you can all hold yourselves and hold each other accountable to. And also as a leader, when there's, you know, it's you got to get concrete. If someone's like, yeah, sure, I'll take lead on organizing the farmer's market that we want to do or the swap market, then it's like, okay, well, let's check in in two weeks. Do you plan to do this by then, this by then? And then as the leader, you come in, you check in with your people, you make sure everyone's on the same page. I think Lisa has her crew there too. So let's let's say hello to Lisa's crew in the Tulsa, Oklahoma. All right, here they come. Here you comes trouble. Know this guy. Hey, guys. Yeah. And this is my other Liberty on Top cohort, Joanna, and my wonderful husband, Deacon. Awesome. Wow. Hey, uh, Lisa, can you can you share with us the the structure? Right. So there's a there's a structure that I always talk about. And sometimes I think I'm losing people when I talk about it. But uh, it starts with the intercondre, so on and so forth. Can you give us your understanding of how that structure works and why it's important when it comes to organizing? Sure. Um, so I, I love what um, Nicole said about letting the community tell you how to grow. So um, I think that that's what we did. A few of us got together, um, especially uh, those of us who have known each other through our um, activism and our Liberty on Tap. So we knew each other pretty well. 
and we trusted each other. Um, and that's where it started. And, you know, we brought in a few people and we actually, I think, have a good solid eight, nine people. And that's what we consider our, our inner group. Uh, we work more closely on certain things and uh, we'd meet just us. Uh, but then we have our, our bigger, uh, like our public meetings. I created a meetup on meetup um, to get other people coming. And um, they, most of our group shows up for those as well. And that lets other people see how we work together and organize. We're not really terribly structured, but it is our group, our inner core group. And we know that's who we are. And, um, and we do, you know, we'll have, we'll have get togethers and discuss certain things just with our group that we want with the uh, um, outer groups. Um, so when the other people do come and they have questions, it's, it's sort of um, just happened organically. And um, so we can share that with other people on what they can do and how they can form their own groups. Now, the people in our inner core group can also be a part of another group or another cell because um, we have some communication guys like the ham radio and CB radio. Um, once things grow and, uh, you know, we get a little larger, we could have that communication cell that they would be a part of, but they would still be part of our inner core group because we're the ones that work more closely together. We've known each other for a while and we do have, we, you know, we've set some goals with each other for, um, or in, and individually for food storage uh, when I make a farm order, because we have several farmers here who uh, we buy or purchase our food from, I'll check in with everybody to see if they need to add to the order. Because some has a um, some of them have a minimum um, amount to purchase, so uh, we check in with each other on that. If I'm running to the dairy, you know, I'll call somebody. I'll call Joanne and say, "Hey, need anything from the dairy?" So our core group, that's kind of how we work, um, and. Then we just, you know, meet other people where they're at and uh, share the knowledge that we have with our ham and our CB radios and whatever, you know, our um, technology stuff and privacy stuff. Um, and it just spreads from there. So I don't try to, um, I think it can get a little confusing when I start talking to people about that, uh, the cells and the inner cadre and the metacadre and all that. I, I, I lose them at the beginning. They kind of have to see how things are working and then um, it's easier to present that um, system of um, organization with them. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, uh, real quick, can you share, uh, you, you had a, a meetup recently where you brought your crew over and you guys built a garden on the side of your house. Can you just share with the audience what you think that would have taken if you did it all by yourself and, and how quick y'all got that accomplished with the crew, Lisa? Oh, sure. Um, it's about a 20 by 20 foot um, section in my yard. And Mike, who um, was on Monday, um, awesome guy, he brought in a load of mushroom compost. And then uh, we have a green waste site here in Tulsa where you can get mulch for free. And I just paid a guy to deliver it. Um, Chet showed up and uh, we had, I think, five or six people working. They brought their wheelbarrows and their pitchforks, mm -hmm. and we got that thing knocked out in about two and a half hours. And if wow. I had to do it by myself, it might have taken me a, a week. Wow. 
That's great. Yeah. And that's yeah. what it's all about. And it doesn't have to be all extreme and like getting all radical. Nobody's talking about storming the Capitol. We're just talking about growing food, pulling our kids out of government schools and and all that good stuff. Nicole, I, I understand that your crew just uh, came back in. Some more folks. Apparently wanna... they left the Holler Neighbor dinner and came down here. So come on in. This is Jenny. <laughs> all right. So it's Jenny. And then the guy I told you about who turned me from a communist into a libertarian is Kurt. Okay. So that's the rest of them. Are the kids here or no? Just Landry. Okay. Does he want to come on? Landry, do you want to come on? Yep. Okay. Landry's going to come on. Um, you know, something I was thinking about as Lisa was talking, though, which this is Landrick. Hi, Landrick. Like the opposite on my computer, <laughs> is that um, what was I thinking about when Lisa said that? Anyway, the, the clear, like the doer mentality really taps in to helping your community be strong. But if you have a lot of rules, then you run into trouble. So she kind of said, we don't have a lot of rules. And that's, I think that's what has really helped with us that we're all kind of, we have our own fiefdoms in our houses and we help each other and we agree on doing things, but we don't have a lot of like, you know, daily meeting or anything like that. Because if we had a lot of hierarchy going on, I think it would be, it wouldn't work. And I see like, we talk about leaders and followers. It's more like different people here facilitate different things according to their talents. Right, Jenny? Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. And that's kind of what we uh, learned about with the sociocracy stuff, how there's like single purpose. These guys are more skilled at this, so on and so forth. Uh, we got about 10 minutes left um, before we wrap up the panel. Let me ask uh, whoever, thanks for the Nicole, the, the Tennessee crew and the the uh, Tulsa crew, super exciting. Uh, let me ask you this, and, and somebody just jump in or raise your hand and we'll go to you first. Have you guys experienced, because I know I have, when I share about the Freedom Cell concept and how we're all organizing and getting a bunch of people together, and eventually we want to have 100,000 people. Right now we have 15,000 people, and it's very clear that we're not fond of the state and that we want to opt out. Do you guys ever get any pushback where people say that being a part of the Freedom Cell Network makes you more vulnerable to state aggression? Or do you find that some people say that being a part of the Freedom Cell Network actually makes you more safe? Anybody? I, I'd like to take that. Yeah. So I, right, I ahead, actually have, uh, I've never got that, but I think at, at this phase, we're currently not even put ourselves out in the public. So people don't have to disclose the identity or actually like reveal if they're part of something like this. It's just something that, you know, they've joined through our own circles. So as far as the people who are kind of connected with us, not just in my city, but all across the country, I think currently we are at this phase where people don't know, like we're actively organizing and working together. But then uh, I, I see a lot of paranoia in our, in our circles as well, like people who, who just keep uh, obsessing with the fear component of it and thinking about what can go wrong. But I think that's balanced by the need to actually find people and work with them. So my guess would be that I think it's something that I'll run into at a bigger scale later on. But as of now, not much. Okay. Nicole, Lisa, got any insight on that? I have to say uh, my first rather large Freedom Cell event was two weeks ago. Uh, before then, we had been organizing digitally in the Freedom Cell website. And... I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if I was going to have people show up who wanted to organize a violent uprising or something. And what happened is the community, we, we focused on what the community wanted and what they wanted to do was just talk about building a better world. And I think some of the people who came to that event were really 
kind of uncertain about what this was because it almost seemed like we were organizing something violent, even though like I'm the most peaceful person there is. So it would not be a thing, but I think that's part of the hesitation because people perceive it as, you know, gun toting freedom people. And I, I don't, you know, nothing wrong with guns. I, I have one or two around, but that is the image people get when you start talking about freedom. It's really unfortunate because, you know, it's, it's a bunch of people who are voluntarily deciding to do things like put a garden in at Lisa's or, you know, build a, build a tiny home for a friend. Yeah. I think that's a good point. There, there is this perception with the freedom cell stuff. And I don't know, cause me and Derek are big, you know, mouthpieces for it and we're total peaceniks. I think one way to kind of overcome that is just to be clear at your meetings, be clear in your communication online. Like this is a peaceful movement. We are not here to cause any problems. We're here to exit and build. Okay. Let's, uh, we have five minutes left. Let's, let's throw out some more tips, um, specifically centered around how to find people in your area, because there are people that go to the freedom cells website, they look at the map and then they're, then they message me or Derek and they're like, there's nobody in my area. What's y'all's problem. And it's all the response is, well, then it's up to you to become a leader, right? So let's just throw out some, again, we have five minutes left. So let's hear from each of you. What advice would you give someone who puts their pin on the map? There's no one in their area. What advice would you give them to find people in their area? Let's go to you first, Johan. Yeah, so I haven't particularly, I mean, like when I started doing this stuff, the Freedom Cell website didn't have anyone from India. So I kind of, at least over here, maybe people would have known about it earlier, but they didn't choose to do anything with it. But the way I started getting people was content creation, like so just making videos and, you know, sort of reaching out to different kind of groups who are associated with the cause because the things we talk about, like a lot of different interest groups are kind of tuned into that. Right. So as I started getting more known and as my videos started kind of circulating, you know, and as our community started building online, like not just mine, but then different uh, personalities and people who are making content and raising awareness started getting some following. We all started coming together. You know, people started to get to know who's working on what in the country. So that's how we got our first few people. And now to recruit, we're using strategies like flyer distribution. So like just currently, we have a massive flyer campaign on the vaccines underway because the vaccines have just started out here. So I I think like the last flyer campaign we did, it was a struggle. Like I had, I think we printed around 35,000, 40,000 flyers, and I, wow. I, I still have a bundle left. But this time, like just in two days, we've got nearly 70,000 printed. And uh, it, it just took me a broadcast and people were like, yeah, send me, send me, send me, send me. So it's just like two, 3,000 flyers to everyone and we're inserting them with a newspaper at the same time. So now that we have cool. so many people in our city, it's really easy to pull stuff like this off. So I would say for people who really want to bring people in, the content creation is main. Like the flyers actually have, you know, a public telegram group. So this is what I thought to kind of overcome this. We've built a community of people who we kind of built trust with as a separate group. And now whoever's kind of new is joining, at least with the flyers, random people joining, we've just built a totally separate group, like a new group for them. And then we'll kind of vet them and see if, if we can merge and if, if these people are trustworthy. And also people can use strategies like that. I think personally, just making content and spreading information is really important. That's the way that I've got most people. And then, uh, of course, I mean, like months Freedom Cells, the website itself gets more popular and the network effect kind of grows. You'll automatically have people kind of start to go up there. And, you know, that's how your numbers will grow. Yeah. Right on. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Creating content. Um, Nicole also has a podcast, so she has visibility. Lisa hosts this monthly meetup that can provide visibility. And then another takeaway I got from what you're saying is like having stuff to do. A lot of people focus on the building and the gardening and the self-sufficiency. You guys are out there doing some activism in India. So having stuff to do and bringing the activism back in person, that's that's all that's all good stuff. Okay, Nicole. Also, what is just, a- just one thing I forgot to mention is that also going to like physical places, like doing seminars, conferences, and talking to people there and getting the numbers. Like recently, we just had, you know, big farmers protest. So we were going around doing a small survey, like just like a five question thing. So these kind of things are actually really, really interesting because I mean, if you just go to start up a conversation with someone, it might take you 10 or 15 minutes. But if you just ask them a survey, just the questions are structured in such a way, if you ask the right questions, It'll trigger an interesting conversation and in a minute you'll just get to know like where the per- where the person's mind is at. And if, if he's at your wavelength, you know, you can just like add into your group right there. Like I added a couple of people who I was talking to and who actually, you know, pretty much all the way there just by doing a simple survey, which took very little time. So yeah, these are things people could use to actually grow their numbers. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, Nicole, what uh, tips would you give someone that's just getting started and doesn't really have anyone in their area? I I think you're right on with the content creation and getting the word out, having a way to regularly get together. If there is not, I'm thinking like nothing, if there's absolutely nobody in your community, having that meetup at a predictable time and place is a great idea. And that one came from Lisa, but I think with your community, you get out of it, what you put in. So when I first moved to this County, I didn't know anything about permaculture I just knew I wanted good food and I started selling at the farmer's market. And as a result of that, I got to know people who were philosophically aligned, came to discover there are two or three intentional communities around me that practice permaculture. I still didn't know what it was because they don't talk about it like that. They just say, do these practices, right? And so getting out and seeing people, which is what I mean by when I say you get out of a community, what you put into it, and then finding your people in there right? Because we all click with different people. I might click really well with you, John, and not really well with Lisa and just listen to that and then figure out what your organizing principles are. It happens very quickly if you're willing. And if you're an introvert, you're a little hesitant, but if you're willing to go out and start just meeting people, they're out there, they're around you. They're as frustrated as you are with ever increasing regulations on their lives. And a lot of people now are scared. They're scared that there are going to be shortages again. They're scared that the lockdowns are going to go too far. They're scared that the economy is going to crash. And in these times, the stronger your community is and the higher your trust, the more secure you are. And that's just a reality of life. Right on. Yeah, good stuff. All good things. It's a very beautiful thing, as my friend Rita was pointing out, that I always say, because it very much is. And you are all very beautiful human beings. Lisa, what uh, advice would you have for someone that is looking to find more people in their area for the Freedom Cell Network? Well, like Nicole mentioned, and I said earlier, do something consistent, have a consistent meetup. Put it on. um, Also, when you're on the Freedom Cell Network, be active on there. Um, You know, post occasionally post your meetups on the Freedom Cell Network. So when people go there, they want to see activity. Um, so I think that's that's really important when people are going to the Freedom Cell Network to connect with your local people. Um, you know, if you have a group that you can meet with, kind of like we had the Liberty on Tap, that's a great way to start talking to people about it. 
um, when uh, this all began, you know, friends were, we were talking about what's going on and they were a little um, nervous and, and anxious. And one of them was Storm and I talked to her, I told her about Freedom Cell. She got on and now she is part of the Dallas-Fort Worth Cell, which is like really big now. Um, she's, you know, really grateful that she heard about that. Um, if people are, you know, just people that you're talking to every day, your friends or family, they're feeling a little anxious about what's going on. Bring it up. Talk to them. Like, I don't know. You know, when you mentioned some people, you it might think that, um, uh, you know, asking if we're getting like a negative response. It's like, no, we've just been like telling everybody about it. And you keep it very positive. And when we you just start doing things, even small things like our garden, well, I took pictures and I shared that and people took notice and um, they're like, hey, that's great. You know, they just want to be a part of that. So definitely be consistent and just keep talking about it. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. Well, this has been so much great information. Um, I think Nicole wants to close with one more thing real quick. What do you got, Nicole? Uh, this is more about what you and Derek are doing, John. I have been watching this conference all week long. I've been glued to the TV. And I just wanted to thank you because what you are making tangible for people is that crazy idea. I know we can voluntarily agree to exchange information to help each other out if we want to, to exchange goods and services, and we don't need to regulate it. And all it takes to do it is to start. So I love what you're doing. I love the the centered in peace part of it. And I just wanted to say thank you for putting this together this week. Thank you. Well, thank you for participating and thanks for doing so much great work. And all you guys are awesome. And I'm just so inspired by you guys. And I hope that folks tuned in are getting some inspiration and some motivation to get activated, just like the conference is all about. So thank you so much, each and every one of you for doing the work that you do. Thank you, guys. All right, let's go ahead. We're going to move forward with our night. We really thank Johan in India, Lisa in Oklahoma, uh, Nicole in Tennessee. And I also want to mention, we, we didn't get to have them on tonight, but we've also had a strong showing of freedom cells across Australia. There's just certain pockets of the world where it seems like people have really taken on the concept of decentralized, localized organization, talking about intentional communities, talking about getting land, talking about organizing and how we can help and support each other. I think it's beautiful. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we've seen the website just this week go from 12,000 members around the world to 15,000 people. You can go check the map and search in your area and find people very easily. But also we're seeing an explosion of events. We have an events calendar on there where you can organize specifically for Freedom Cells. We're adding lots of new features. The goal, of course, though, is just to use that digital website to use the maps, to find people in your neighborhood, to get off the internet, to meet in person. So don't get too stuck on the digital features. It's all nice, but really we're just using the website to encourage people to meet in person. Now, the next speaker, our final speaker of this evening, is somebody who's become a close friend to me in the last few years. I've got to work side by side him and see him work and see the events that he creates and the communities that he creates. He's been involved in the literal creation and building of intentional communities in Costa Rica for the last 25 years. He is the co-founder of the Envision Festival and numerous other projects. And he's also my permaculture teacher, who has him and uh, another great teacher have just been showing me and hundreds of people around the world so much important information. Uh, they're also, his, his organization, Ecoversity, is also one of our partners for the Greater Reset. You can find them at ecoversity.org. They have new permaculture courses coming up for anybody who's interested. So please, without further ado, welcome Stephen Brooks. 
Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Derek. I appreciate it. And thank you, everybody that's watching. And uh, I'm tuning in live from satellite uh, solar-powered internet off the grid here in Costa Rica in our farm called Punta Mona. And I am going to share screen. Uh, cross my fingers. I always have to cross my fingers when I share a screen. Um, Chrome has lost permission to capture your screen. Hmm. Uh-oh. So, um, people behind the scenes, if you could undo that, that would be excellent. Um, so, yeah, I'm here in Costa Rica right near the Panama border um, on a farm called Punta Mona that I started 25 years ago. And we uh, were really just truly trying to be an example of another way to do things and another way to, to live and another way to design. Um, I think what everything that we're doing really comes down to design. Um, and still no. It says follow these steps, but I don't know if I want to follow these steps. It might take me away from here. And I don't want to leave you up. If you want to share the screen, it might need to switch browsers real quick. I think that might what it be, be asking you. I'm in Chrome. I, I already switched from – should I not be in Chrome? Uh, it could be Chrome. It might be asking permissions. We had this issue with another guest the other day, and they had to switch browsers. Um, if you want to use the slides. If not, I'm sure everybody will just enjoy what you have to share with or without the slides. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's telling me what to do. On my, on my Mac, click the Apple logo in the top left. System, preference, security, and privacy. Should I take a minute and do it? System, preferences. Click privacy. Oh, I'm so sorry about this. How embarrassing. <laughs> but I really appreciate I really appreciate that you guys that uh that that you guys let that you guys use other alternatives. I was saying, yeah, no, no, this is not on Zoom. They're using How about hey Steven, take a we're gonna take you off and take a minute to work that out. I want to tell everybody a little bit about my experience with egoversity while we wait for you. Okay, all right, perfect. All right. Well, so again, Steven is like I first met Steven. Let me just tell you a little bit about Steven while we wait for him. I first got connected to Steven in 2016. Anybody remember Standing Rock fighting against these oil pipelines, fighting to protect indigenous land? I was blessed to go there, report three times uh, in the summer and then through the fall of 2016. And in just that time period, I connected with, through a friend of a friend, Steven, and was interested in trying to speak at his festival in Vision in Costa Rica. And uh, he invited me to come visit his intentional community, Punta Mona, which is a very beautiful community, off-grid uh, you know, just doing so many great things. And Stephen's way of inviting me was just come to Costa Rica and we'll take care of you. And I said, okay, but should I bring some money or just, just come and everything will be fine. Just, you know, these kind of vague, but somewhat reassuring answers. I'm like, no, but seriously, do I need to bring anything? And Stephen said, just fly into Costa Rica, land in, in San Jose, take the taxi to Manzanilla. When you get there, you go to another small town, ask for Jose, the boat captain, and then you'll arrive in our land. And that's what I did. I ended up in this beautiful paradise where the jungle meets the beach, off the grid. And I mean, I can't recommend it you know, highly enough for anybody who's interested. But really, for me, it was just this wonderful experience of seeing what is possible. And Stephen, you've helped me realize that a lot of the dreams that I have, and I think a lot of the dreams that people here listening and watching tonight have, are completely possible and that you and many others are doing these things and I just think that permaculture is such a such a big part of the answer of what we're doing and so I appreciate what you have going on in Costa Rica
You want to try it again? Should we give him a shot? All right, let's give Steven another yeah, shot. Yeah, we could. I, I think it's not working, but it's How you okay. doing, brother? You're right. I can answer. I do. I, I do have some epic photos, but yeah, no, I do. It, it, it's it, for some reason when I got through all the steps, but it's not showing Chrome there, but it's okay. No problem. Okay. Let's give it up for Steven one more time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. So yeah, I want to, I want to just kind of hone in on this concept of design and, uh, and you know, things are the way they are. And I'm sure like I'm preaching to the choir right now, but they don't need to be that way any longer. And, uh, and when I think about design, like I think about my childhood, I grew up in the suburbs in Miami. And what is the suburbs? You know, it was like this response to the cities, which everybody was living all cramped and people wanted yards and people wanted their pets to run free and they wanted gardens. But what did the suburbs bring on? You know, it brought on, you know, if you wanted to go buy something, you had to go walk from your car to your, from your house to your car, from your car to the store, from the store, back to your car, back to your house. And you lost that magical kind of commute where you walked in the street and you met people. And then the other thing that the suburbs brought in was kind of like the strip mall. Like all of a sudden, like suburbs just started popping up and then, you know, chain stores kind of started happening all over. And, uh, and it, it just kind of like took away the, the idea of the corner store. And, uh, and it, it, it's amazing. It's amazing how, just how that really sense of community kind of dissipated. Now, I, I think back, I went, I guess I, the first thing I want to say is one of my first greatest aha moments with community was on October 14th, 1988. I went to my very first Grateful Dead concert and, uh, and it was profound. You know, the Grateful Dead, just being in a, you know, going from city to city with 20 or 30,000 people that, all had the same values and the same, you know, had the same interests. It was like the first time I really felt like I was surrounded by, by like-minded people. And it was, it was really profound and it really had a, a big influence on me. To fast forward a little bit uh, to 1994, I, I did a semester in Spain and I lived with this elderly woman in an, in an apartment building. And it was 10 buildings in a row with, with you know, four lane streets on either side but you never needed to even go near those streets because all the buildings downstairs had commercial everything. They had cheese shops and meat shops and food stores and, and bingo places and game room places for the kids and bars in the corners where the men were screaming, watching their soccer games. And in between the buildings, there was like little park benches and trees. So anytime you needed to go buy something, you went to one of the buildings. And I remember I lived with this elderly woman and we would walk through the street and it would be like, Hola, abuela. Hola, Mario. We'd walk a little bit. Hola, abuela. Hola, Maria. I was just ready for her to be like, hola, Snuffleupagus. Hola, Big Bird. It freaking felt like Sesame Street. Everybody was so nice to each other. It was like walking through the street and everybody was just so kind. And, and then we would get to the store and my abuela, she, I don't think she had regular clothes. She only wore pajamas. She always wore her like little nightgown. She didn't even have pockets. And we would walk into the store and before, like, as we're walking in the, the store, you know, the, the shopkeeper was already like packing up her things because he knew what she was buying and she never had to go get her wallet or anything. She just signed. And every store that we went to was like a cousin or the friends, her friend's kids store. So everything we bought, we were supporting our friends. And it just it was so different. I grew up in Miami, Florida. We went to Publix, which was like the 
1500 store chain food store and all the products there were general mills and Kraft and hershey's and giant corporations and uh and this was just felt so right and uh and the other thing that that comes to mind when i tell you that story is uh several years later already when i was living in costa rica and i'm going to get to that i had a dear friend named rolf ruge rolf may he rest in peace was the founder of the uh feria verde which is the organic market here in in Costa Rica. And it's one of the best organic markets in all of Central and South America. It is incredible. And, uh, and Rolf, you know, the, the interesting thing about the market is if you wanted to sell there, they didn't just come and do a farm visit to make sure you could sell there. They would come and stay with you for a week and, and, and really check out how you did things. And, and I remember when it first started, there was like 12 stands and, you know, there'd be people like literally going on the bus with their crates of things to come and sell things. Now there's like 60 stands that all the stands have their own like wrapped refrigerated trucks. And it's amazing the success that it's been. But the interesting thing is Rolf, every time you, uh, every time you would go to his house, you'd have these huge lunches at his house. It was like kind of the epicenter of the ecological activism happening in Costa Rica. And people from all Costa Rica, all over Costa Rica would have lunch at his house. And it was so, it was such an experience. And he would start every meal and he would say, no hay ningún ingrediente en mi mesa que no conozco el nombre y el apellido del productor. There is not one ingredient on my table that I don't know the first and last name of the producer. And then he would proceed and he would start going around the table. Ah, las tortillas. Ah, la ma el maíz está sembrado por Mario Vargas y las tortillas hecho por su esposa Esmeralda. Y después los pepinos y tomates venía de finca Los Sueños. I, mi gran amiga, Carmen. And he would, he would introduce you to the, the food on his table as if he was introducing you to his family. And it was so deep. It was so profound. It was so magical to, to experience that relationship with food and to experience that relationship between the, the consumer and the, and the seller. And just like his relationship with all the people at the market and all the people that were selling and Anyway, so that, that was really profound. Uh, around at the year after I went to Spain, I, um, I came to Costa Rica on vacation and I fell in love with the country. It's so beautiful. The beautiful jungles and the rivers and the beaches and the coral reefs and the beautiful people, the indigenous people and the Afro-Caribbean people. But it wasn't until I, uh, I decided to go check out the indigenous area, which is, you know, from where I sit probably... 12 miles that way. And uh, I went to the town of Bribri and the indigenous tribe, the Bribri, lived there. And as I was on my way there, I was like meandering through the mountains. And it was beautiful jungles with little thatch huts and indigenous children selling fruits in, their, in front of their houses on tables. And it was just, it felt so right. And then all of a sudden I came around this corner and as far as my eye could see was an endless sea of banana plantations. And I remember just feeling like, <gasps> whoa what is going on here? And I don't know what it was, but I had this like urge. I just like turned my car and I drove right into this little dirt road into like the heart of the banana plantation. And I just remember seeing these big giant blue bags and just these, it, it just felt like, it just felt like a factory, an agricultural factory, which I never really experienced. And then all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I watched this airplane coming down. And I literally, it had a big stream of smoke behind it. I thought it was about to crash. 
and it, it went right over my car and I literally started feeling my face and my eyes burning and I watched it fly right over a playground full of indigenous children playing soccer. And it was like, emergency break on my freaking life. How can we be doing this? What is going on here? Who is responsible for this? You know, it's like I wanted to point my finger and blame it. Monsanto, is it Dow Chemical? Is it, you know, who is responsible? Chiquita Banana, like what's going on here? And then I kept driving. And as I drove, all of a sudden, this big metal cable came down in front of me. And I'm just sitting in my little rent-a-car with my Grateful Dead bootleg cassette and the tape player. And, and then all of a sudden, this like metal cable came down. And all of a sudden, the bananas were like, zoop, zoop. And I'm just sitting in my car watching them go by one after another, these perfect green giant bunches. And then after about 20 or 30 bunches, there was a guy hanging from the cable and he was just moving them along and he stopped right in front of my rent-a-car. And he was this like five foot two stocky indigenous, me indigenous man from Panama. And he stopped in front of my car and he started staring me in the soul. And I started staring him at him in his soul. And it was probably like 10 or 15 seconds, but it felt like 10 or 15 million years. And I just felt like I got catapulted out into the ethers and just watched this, this beautiful blue and green ball spinning. And, and it's just like, all of a sudden it hit me like, wow, I'm responsible for this. Every morning when I would slice my chiquitas into my cinnamon life cereal in the morning, mm, cinnamon life. I was basically spraying these indigenous children. I had clear, I was funding clearing that rainforest. I was sending those blue plastic bags into the sea, down the rivers and into the sea so that the turtles would suffocate on them thinking they're jellyfish. I was responsible for that every time I freaking bought my bananas. And it was a real big wake up. It was a real, it was a moment of like, hmm, this is, this is, one big system and we're all connected and I cannot be a part of that anymore. And I want to dedicate my life to figuring out how I could walk lighter and how I can help others to just see what we're a part of creating. And so the first thing I did was I started to bring uh, high school and college students down to Costa Rica with the goal to show them how beautiful Costa Rica was. Um, but I also wanted to show them the reality, the reality of the rainforest destruction, the reality of the indigenous cultural decimation, the reality of the multinational industrial agricultural chaotic hell that was destroying our all harmony. And then I wanted to show solutions. And, and that's when uh, that's where Punta Mona came about, where I'm sitting right now, which is uh, it's uh, around nine. Now it's around 90 acres. There's originally around 30 acres. And like I said, it's off the grid. There's no road to get here. You have to take either a boat, right, Melly? She was scared on the boat today. Um, you either have to take a boat around 25 minutes along the jungle Clyde coast, or you hike through the trail for an hour and a half through primary rainforest. And we're in the heart of the Gandoka Manzanillo Wildlife Refuge. And uh, it's one of these rare places on earth where primary rainforest, giant trees come right up to the ocean. And it's the interesting thing about where I am is this used to be a town of 60 Afro-Caribbean families. So when I first got here in 1995, I met my neighbor, Patty, who 
right there. He said, boy, my cord is buried right out there in the yard. I was like, what? Oh, your cord is, oh, your cord is buried, meaning he was born here in 1928. He died in my arms in 2013. Uh, we lived, you know, pretty much 20 years side by side. And uh, he was the quintessential old man by the sea. And the minute I met him, I said, I want to live near that guy. I want to bring people to experience the way he's living, his connection to the earth, his connection to all the cycles of life. And, uh, and so, yeah, so we started bringing students here and staying here at Punta Mona. And our goal was to, you know, show example of a, of a different way to do things, learning and, and, and learning the ways of Patty. And at Early on in my time, I became absolutely obsessed. I started like replacing all the uh, Grateful Dead set lists that were ingrained in my brain. I started replacing them with scientific names of exotic fruit trees and plants. I became obsessed with plants and I became really into ethnobotany. Like if you, if you had to put any title under my name, which those are the projects are under my name there, but I would put ethnobotanist, which is the study of the relationship between humans and plants. It lights me up. Uh, this morning in yoga class, our yoga teacher that's here was, was saying, what lights you up, you know, and what makes you come alive in the great yogic fashion that she was teaching? And, I, and what makes me come alive is that, is that relationship between human beings and plants. It is so deep. It is so profound, this, this relationship that's been going on all over the globe and all over the, you know, what can we eat? You know, what can we heal ourselves with? What can we get high with? What can we color our clothes with? What can we make ourselves smell good with? What, what can we build our houses with? You know, it just was like, it's such a fascinating thing that it happened simultaneous all over the world. And then just this idea of the diaspora, the diaspora, meaning the journey from the home and these plants all from different places around this earth and just the way human beings began to spread them. And, and just this, this diaspora and this relationship, I became totally obsessed. And it all started with a plant called chaya. My dear friend Silvio, you know, so when I first moved here with Patty, we were eating fish, yucca, and plantains like every day. And it was getting boring. It was like bubble gum. Like we'd have like fish cakes and yucca fritters and plantain mash. And the next day we'd have yucca mash and plantain patacones and and so we were constantly trying to figure out ways to, you know, I was from Miami. Like one day we'd have Italian food and the next day we'd have Thai food. So for me moving here, it was a, it was a real shock. And then my, my friend Silvio gave me a cutting of chaya, which is Mayan tree spinach. And he said, oh yeah, stick this, stick this in the ground. All you have to do is, uh, is, um, is stick it in the ground and you'll have unlimited steamed greens. And I was like, really? So I did it. I stuck it in the ground. And he was right. All of a sudden, I had unlimited steamed greens. And it was super nutrition, delicious, and incredible. And I, all I could think about is, wow, that one stick just radically improved my life. There must be all kinds of sticks out there that can improve people's lives. And I want to find them. I want to find those sticks. I want to find those plants. And I want to help make people's lives better. And so, yeah, for the past 25 years, I've just been, yeah, really seeking cool plants and even today some exciting plants just came on the boat with my friends and uh and yeah we have an incredible incredible collection of plants i just was seeing what i had in the kitchen that i could bust out these are kaimitos or star apple oh in my slideshow i have so many great 
pictures of all my favorite weird foods. Uh, and if it wasn't dark, I would actually walk around with the phone right now and just give you like the night, the day tour of, of Punta Mona. Um, one plan I will tell you about, which is right outside here. And many people wear crosses around their neck, but not me. I wear a breadfruit leaf. I'm super passionate about breadfruit. Breadfruit is a perennial, like a potato, but it grows on a tree. And so we make mashed breadfruit. We make breadfruit today. Was it? Yeah, today at lunch, we had breadfruit fries. were amazing. Uh, and let me get back on track. So Punta Mona. And so over the last 20, so we, I knew we wanted to be a, a, an example. I always want to get back to plants. So if I start going on weird tangents, talking about plants, in the chat, John, you just shake me and say, hey, Stephen, enough about the plants. Stay on, stay on track. Um, I have attention deficit order, AD, ADHO, attention deficit hyperactivity order. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, so I, uh, we have a good plant for it too. It's called Tilo. So I, um, I really wanted to show an example of solutions of a different, different way to physically do things. Like what, how are we going to grow food? How are we going to build our houses? How are we going to heal ourselves? We don't have hardware stores. We don't have food stores. Like how can we be example of like water? Where are we going to get water? Where are we going to put it? Where are we going to send it when it gets dirty? Like how are we going to deal with waste and septic? And, and so we wanted to be an example on the physical level, but we also wanted to be an example on the social and economic level. Like how can we, you know, okay, I'm the owner of the farm and Peter's manager and Rob's the farm lead and, and uh, we have, you know, 20 volunteers here. And then we have, you know, a yoga teacher training and the leaders of that. And then we have there's 20 students. And then there's a the momentum circus group that's here. And, and, but what's the difference between me, the owner and the volunteer? Nothing. It's not like I'm over out here eating filet mignon while they're out there eating porridge. Like we really wanted to blur that line between us and them and, and the workers that come from Gendoka. Like how can we really treat each other differently. I, I often say in circles, we, we hold hands before lunch and dinner every day and we have for 25 years. That's another thing is like, how can we make everything more sacred and how can we bring ritual back to our every day? Like I remember going to Bali and it was like every day there was some magical ritual happening. What, what's to say we can't do that here? So our meals every day. So every day before the meal, it's like presented as if as if it's like the work of art of the day. And, and actually today's dinner was a workshop that was a farm to table workshop that the whole circus group went around and harvested our dinner today. And, and they were saying in the circle, like, wow, like I was appreciating the food before, but now what I see going, goes into it and where it's all coming from. And, and it, it's really profound, this relationship that we have with our meals and, you, the frequency of eating food that's just been grown within, you know, 150 meters of where you're eating it brings great, great magic. And so over the last 25 years, we've learned a lot of lessons. We've had tens of thousands of students that have come through here at Punta Mona. We taught the first permaculture course ever in Costa Rica in, in 2001. And so permaculture, I'm sure I've, I know that a lot of other people have spoken about it. Permaculture it comes from the words permanent and culture and you know, it's really got nothing to do with farming. A lot of people think, oh, a permaculture. Yeah, it's a great way to farm. Yeah, permaculture isn't a way to farm. Permaculture is all just about energy. And uh, a term that I love to share is, is EROI, energy returned on energy invested. How can we, and that's a constant relationship that's going on with everything. Like, what are we giving and what are we getting? And 
And how can I be more efficient? And how can I be more ecological? And how can I be more mindful of resources? So one thing in permaculture that's really important that we love is, is really focusing more on a perennial diet, foods that come from trees, foods that come, you know, rather than having to constantly till and fertilize, you tend the system because we want to mimic nature. And, uh, and there's so many amazing foods that come from trees. So we're really trying to, we're really trying to figure out, can we grow more nutritious perennial foods and really shift the paradigm of diet? You know, because, you know, there's all these different diet trends that have gone on and most of them are, are like so much about like ourselves and our health. But how can we find a diet that's going to take care of our health and also take care of the health of the planet? And I think this idea of eating perennials is so and that's kind of why I'm so excited about breadfruit. And tonight for dinner, we had Aki. I don't know if people are familiar with Aki, but it's they call it vegetable brains and they look like, hey, babe, is that one Aki still over there? Can we grab it for you? I'll show you guys one. It's pretty awesome. Um, it's the national dish of Jamaica. It's from West Africa. And it tastes, it tastes, oh, thanks. Oh, it's getting a little gnarly, this one. But you can see why they call it brains. It looks like a little brain. And it's pumping here right now. I can't believe that we could feed 80 people Aki. It's like, that brings me great joy and, and excitement. Um, but Aki and breadfruit are like the main foods of Jamaica. And, uh, and Aki is just such incredible perennial food. It makes me so excited. My parents actually have a big tree in their yard in Miami. So, yeah, so Putamona was was happening and the students were coming. And then all of a sudden I got to a moment where all I could think about was like, okay, you know, maybe it's time to have children. My parents are getting older. Putamona is great and it's a great education center, but I feel like we need to do more. Like I feel like we could take this permaculture concept, we could take these visions and how can we create more large-scale communities where we can have schools and elders? And, and what would that look like? So my dad was just about to retire uh, from 35 years as a dentist. And we decided we were going to do a, make a little fund, raise money from friends and family. And we were going to try to find land to start a community. So the first thing you want to do if you ever want to, to do something like this or really anything where you're trying to make a decision, you want to create a criteria. And so my criteria was very clear. I knew I wanted to be in Costa Rica because I love it. I love Costa Rica. There's no army. It's so beautiful. The people are so wonderful. There's so many reasons why I love Costa Rica. Then after being so long in Punta Mona, I, I, I knew that I wanted to be closer to San Jose. And I, I wrote it down. I decided I want to be within one hour of San Jose. And then I decided I want to be between four and 700 meters above sea level. For one, the climate for growing food is is amazing. It's kind of this interesting edge where you can grow like the tropical, warm tropical fruits, but it's high enough where you could start, you can grow a lot of the vegetables. And then I wanted to be able to live somewhere where I can lay naked on big hot boulders and drink sun. That's what we say in Spanish, tomar sol, drink sun. And when I get too hot and crispy, I could roll over into a crystal clear pool and drink the water. This is my dream. This is my criteria. I can make it however I want. And then I knew that I want to find property that uh, that has already been cleared. I don't want to find forest or anything. I want to find property that's been already cleared for cattle or cleared for agriculture so I could, we can come in and regenerate it. Because often when we think about development and developing land, we think of destruction and we think of loss of habitat and we think about ecological you know, just devastation. 
But can you imagine if we could be developers that actually come in and radically improve the land? It's like a whole other way to even think. So we ended up finding the property and it's 17 hectares, which is 46 acres. And it's an hour from San Jose in the town called San Mateo de Alajuela. And we started a community that's now called La Ecovilla. And we put together an incredible team. And now there's 45 families from 22 countries. And we have over 40 children in the school that the parents co-created. And it's kind of like an unschooling model. And it's amazing, especially now, like in the time of COVID and this, uh, this time where, you know, we couldn't really, everything was just kind of on shutdown. We never needed to go anywhere. Like we, you know, like where, where I've been hearing people's experiences with COVID, like when I talk to my friends in the States and everything, like I've been here at Punta Mona, which is like a little bubble. And then I'd go there and it's like there, everything gets delivered. Like here, we just, everything gets delivered. You know, there's, and what's interesting about community is all of a sudden when you have 45 families, you have enough purchasing power that with the organic veggie people, they come right to our door because there's 45 families there. The cashew, organic cashew people right to our door. Oh, the coconut water people, no problem. I mean, everyone just comes right to our door because we're enough critical mass that that people are going to come. But what we found was we learned a lot of lessons. And and one of the lessons we learned is that 45 families wasn't enough. Like there wasn't enough 12-year-olds. There wasn't enough people that were into certain things. So and we, we, we there wasn't enough people to have a restaurant or a health food store. So we decided we were going to grow. And three years ago, we, again, raised some money and – we bought 170 neighboring acres, which is now called Alegria Village. And Alegria Village is around 135 more lots. And we've already sold around 120 of them to people from 25 countries. And it's been an incredible last six months. I, I got the l- lucky, luck of the draw, or maybe not luck, just perfect karma. But uh, I, I hosted this... Uh, actor named Zach Efron. Um, I had never heard of him, but my friend called me, Oh yeah, we're doing this show with this child actor named Zach Efron. And, uh, and we want to come visit you in Costa Rica. And I was like, great, no problem. So he, they ended up coming down and in 2018 and exactly in the peak of COVID July 10th of, of 2020, the TV show came out and it just blew up our world. And, uh, and it was unbelievable. Just, you know, between COVID and the political stuff that was going on in the U.S. and the TV show really, you know, it really was a great demonstration of just how things could be. You know, it showed Punta Mona and it showed Ecovia and it showed a little bit of Alegria. And uh, and the idea, the idea was and is like, you know, how can we do something that's never been done? You know, how can we create a reality that's just like there's no limit? to the dreaming. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's totally happening. And I, I just want to kind of zoom out a little bit. One other project that I want to tell you about that Derek was mentioning was Ecoversity. And, you know, I went to school to high school and then college and, and I got out of college and I just felt like, okay, now, you know, now what I just spent, you know, the last 16 years in schooling. And like, I feel like I don't know anything. And, uh, and then I started living with Patty, this, you know, 75 year old Caribbean guy. And I felt like, wow, I'm learning so much. I'm learning how to grow food. I'm learning how to make things. I'm learning how to live. How are we going to learn how to live? So that was kind of, Ecoversity was kind of in response to that. Permaculture was an incredible, just, it's just such an incredible toolbox. 
And it also just kind of gives you a sense of confidence of like, wait a minute, we want to design a new world. We need a toolbox of, of we need to understand water systems and we need to understand land earth movement and we need to understand food systems and we need to understand, you know, green building. And we just need to understand climates and design and, and, and permaculture was a real breakthrough. So we launched Ecoversity around the same time as the TV show. Again, incredible timing. Um, Derek and Miriam are in our course and we have 217 people from 27 countries in our permaculture course, you know, and I, I was always against even doing stuff online, you know, for, like I never really wanted to, you know, because of COVID we, we did it and I am absolutely blown away. I had made some slides to show you with some of the things that are, have happened because of the course for some of the people that are in it and the things that they're doing. And, and part of the permaculture course is you do a design project and it is unbelievable just, you know, people normally a permaculture is like jammed into two or three weeks. Now it's, it's over six months, twice a week. And it's so intimate and it's so amazing. Like here I am in a zoom with 150 people and somebody starts talking and I know who it is. You know, it's like, it's amazing how close we've become. And, and, uh, my sweetie Andrea and I did another course called embody your purpose, which was also, an, we had 40 people and it was just an incredible success of just sharing and connecting and, and really inspiring that we could do this. We could do this. We could truly create a whole new world. There's nothing, absolutely nothing stopping us. Now more than ever is the time for us to step up and find out all the different questions. Where, where do we want to do this? Who, who do we want to do this with? Cause we can do, we can do, it's hard to do big things alone. So really start figuring out who do you want to start working with? And, and what does that look like? And, and, and also down to the core of why, why do we want, what do we want to do and why? So, uh, so this whole kind of vision, oh, the other thing that I, that, that Derek mentioned that I forgot to tell you, it was in 2010, I, one of the co-founders of the Envision Festival, which um, I've been going to Burning Man since 2001. I've been about 17 times. I've spent more time in Burning Man in Black Rock City than I have in any other city over the last 18 years. I know it sounds so crazy, but I don't really go to cities. I, you know, I go if I have to go visit someone or something, but like, I'm not really into the way the cities are. And I mean, there's cool things and there's lots of distractions, but it's not really my, my calling, but black rock city is the city I like. And, uh, and so, um, why was I mentioning Bernie man? Envision. Oh yeah. Envision. Right. So I was so, <laughs> thanks. So I was so inspired by Burning Man that I, every year I like invite one of my Costa Rican friends. I wanted to bring everyone from Costa Rica. I want you to come and try Burning Man. You got to experience it. And then I said, wait a minute. I can't bring all my Costa Rican friends to Burning Man, but maybe I can bring a little Burning Man to Costa Rica. And uh, and so we we uh, we just had our 10th anniversary. And last year we had almost 10,000 people. And it's amazing. It's amazing just how that experience it's like experience how delicious life could be so you never want to go back to your old ways and 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 just like one of the last thing i want to mention is this is all part of a bigger vision you know here we were with Puntamona with the agriculture and the education and then we had ecovia and alegria and the communities and then we had envision and the festival and that, and that whole reality but how can we bring this all together how can we create a replicable model that we can start create helping to create all over the world. And so the project that came to mind, I said, I, I started thinking, what is the size of a project that would actually make a difference? And it came to me one day, I was like, okay, 
a thousand hectares. That's 2,400 acres. That feels big enough. And, uh, and so, uh, the project, and then my friend was like, no, don't do a thousand, do a thousand one. So you can do a one sideways infinity side one, 1,001 redesigning the earth, a thousand one hectares at a time, merging conservation, reforestation, regenerative agriculture, education, and community. And, uh, and so, yeah, we're fully, it's fully happening. I wish I could show you the beautiful slide I showed you of the area around us with all the different properties that we've identified and the incredible event space that we're, we're starting to organize that's called Eterna. Oop, don't tell anybody. It's a secret. It hasn't been launched yet. Um, and, uh, and, and massive agriculture, you know, because when you think about 1,001 hectares, imagine if 30% of that was in reforestation, for instance. That's 300 hectares. Or if 30, 40% was in regenerative agriculture and food forest. That's three or 400 hectares with massive food processing plants, with cooperatively owned business, businesses with our, with our workers. And, and so, yeah, I'm feeling more confident than ever that, that it's, that it's time. And, uh, and there's no better time than now. And, and I'm excited to invite all of you that are watching to become, to come and visit, to come and experience Punta Mona. And I want to invite, oh, thanks. That's cool. Welcome to our dream. That's my dad's quote. Punta Mona is more than a place. It's a feeling. He always says, he always says that, uh, in the circle, my dad always, always like kind of gets teary eyed. And he always says, uh, you know, the faces change here but the feeling is always the same. And, uh, and yeah, that's our website, Punta Mona Ecoversity. Yeah. Thanks, Derek. You guys are so techie. Um, so yeah, I want to invite Derek back. Uh, if you have any questions or that's pretty much, uh, in a nutshell, what we've been up to. Yeah. I got a whole crew here. Like I said, we have, we have 85 people. Uh, we have 85 people here right now. Such a good vibe. I wish I wish I could fall here. There's an open mic happening right now at the main house. Yeah, how many people do you have at Punta Mona right now? 85. 85 people. And you might be wondering about wow. COVID and stuff. Like, but we, we've been very careful. And we have lots of angels. I'm sure you do have lots of angels. We know you're safe. Stephen, one question I did get from the audience is, are you currently accepting volunteers work for trade? You know, talk a little bit about how that works as far as people who might want to get involved at Punta Mona or people who are interested in maybe living at Alegria. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Punta Mona right now, we literally get 20 or 30 inquiries a day as volunteers. So we more are doing programs and then like educational workshops and retreats, um, unless you have really great skills. And that's the thing I would tell anyone get really good at, 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 at agriculture or at green building, any community will accept you anytime. So like a lot of times people will ask, we're not just taking volunteers to just come and learn because we just have 30 or 40 people literally writing every day. And it's, it's overwhelming, you know, and, and people sound really great. And, but, uh, we're pretty much, we have about 25 volunteers here right now. Most of them have already been here for a long time. Uh, but we do sometimes, and if you have great skills, we do have space for you. At Alegria, we do uh, webinars, weekly webinars, both in English and, and in Spanish. And uh, and you can go to the website, alegriavillage.com, and sign up for one of the webinars. I always start off and talk, but uh, uh, yeah, 
Alegria is totally happening. And, and also stay in touch because this is just unfolding. And our goal is to really create this prototype that then we can replicate. And the thing is, is even if you're not interested in moving to Costa Rica, but you want to do something like this, it's worth joining the webinar. Like I always say on, on all the webinars, like everything we're saying here is copy lefted. Please copy it. Please do, you know, like there, there's nothing, there's no secrets here. Like sometimes like um, I have, I have friends that are like worried that like they're in my WhatsApp. So we need to switch over. I hope they're watching and listening to everything I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate they, that, Stephen. I got, a, I got another question for you. Um, and I, I sort of know this answer. I think it is an important topic to address because so we're, we're having an in-person event here in Mexico and, and we always want to be, and whether we're in Mexico, Costa Rica, the U.S., anywhere where we're not maybe native to that country, we want to make sure that we are uh, supportive and, and kind guests in there. And so the question was about how you balance the needs of the local community uh, and the community that you've created there. And I, I want to say before you give an answer that I definitely can, I appreciate that from my experience visiting Punta Mona, how I've seen the local indigenous community kind of become part of the community and, and incorporated as opposed to sort of like just being an expat community or, or something like that. So talk a little bit about that if you can. Totally. So, you know, at Punta Mona and at Ecoversity, like at Ecoversity, we, uh, for every 10 people that signed up, we did a hundred percent scholarship for, uh, um, a person of color or indigenous, uh, people from around the world. Like it was unbelievable how people reached out. It was incredible. The reach that we had with Ecoversity at Punta Mona, we've been scholarshipping, Costa Ricans for all of our workshops since we since we started, and at Eco, at Alegria, we um, designated a certain percentage of lots for Costa Ricans, and we kept the prices way lower, and and are really trying to figure out creative ways to get as many Costa Ricans living there as possible. A lot of people wonder about like what about the indigenous people that live there uh, where we in the area that we're doing these things these projects are not where indigenous people live. They are like kind of like rich white Costa Rican uh, uh, cattle ranchers that have giant cattle farms. So the idea is to convert those cattle farms. And, you know, it, can we do better? Yes. You know, it's like, can we find different sources of funding so everything can stay cheaper? We can. And I, you know, in permaculture, we often talk about this idea and this concept of transitional ethics. And, you know, people would say, like, why, are, why did you do it if you had to give so much return to your investors? And then the lots became so expensive. And, and I was like, well, you know, it's like I can sit and wait and wait until the angel shows up and, and writes the big check, which I think there's somebody – actually, wait a minute. I think I see somebody out there in the computer writing a check right now. Amazing. Derek, um, if you could post in the chat my uh, PayPal and my bank info. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, really like I, I, I hear it and I get it and we're truly, we truly hear the concern and we're truly trying our best. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Steven, I want to address one other point and then we'll see if, if John has any questions for you or if anybody in the audience has any questions online or, or, or anything like that. I want you to talk for a moment about something I've heard you say in our conversations and on the permaculture course about the fact that, so Punta Mona was previously, or actually maybe I'm thinking of Envision being a previously a cattle ranch, but I know that you've mentioned that instead of everybody who's out there thinking, yeah, after this week, I'm going to go out and build an intentional community, instead of maybe going out and finding this like perfectly pristine piece of land, being open to finding parts of the earth that need remediation, that need help mm -hmm. and that need healing, 
and for us to build there. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, a lot of people come to Costa Rica and they like go fall in love with some big rainforest tree. Oh, I want to live here. And then what are you going to do? Clear a bunch of the rainforest so you could live there? Meanwhile, there's so much there's so much land that's been just so radically deforested all over the world. The the way land is being used, you know, and I always thought it was an American thing. And, and a, a few years ago, I drove across Europe for my first, I mean, I'd been to Europe, but I'd never really driven. And the amount of land that's being used to grow food, to feed animals is sickening. You know, the way the land is being used, there's so much incredible land that is just being poorly used. And at the same time, like, how can we meet our goals while improving the most amount of people's lives? Like, it seems so simple. Like, how could, like, for me, like, you know, uh, my neighbor Patty used to say, boy, you can't take it with you to the burying ground, you know? So it's, it's like, we can collect things and collect things and collect things, but then what? Like, what the real legacy, you know, like, how can we really hone in on our legacy? You know, how can we, how many people's lives can we make better through our projects? You know, so right now, a big kind of, you know, we, I, right now with Alegria, I'd say like a third or more of my time is being focused like on the social give back. Uh, my girlfriend has a nonprofit called Dress Your Rights that we're working right now on creating uh, we So we have a huge community fund, a big percentage of the profits that came in from Alegria. Uh, are going towards this community fund. So now we're trying to figure out, well, what does that look like? Like, how can we truly help the community? Like, how can we truly come in and have the most positive impact that we possibly can? You know, it's not like it's easy to come in. Oh yeah. The, the green that Americans are going to come in and, and, and they're going to just fix things. No. Like, how can we really learn to listen? Like, what are the needs of the community and how can we come in and, and not tell people what to do, but truly support their dreams and their visions. So I think, I think, uh, yeah, I kind of went on a tangent, but no, I th but, that's yeah. a that's a good answer, brother. I do appreciate that, and and yeah, I think it's it's something that we've 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 seen even out here, uh, just being in Mexico, traveling around Mexico, and uh, we definitely all can benefit from learning to listen better to our neighbors, right? No matter where we're living, and I appreciate that. Any any other final final closing words or thoughts you want to share with the audience? We really appreciate you being with us mm. tonight, and we have people. Who are listening from all around the world, people who are going to be waking up in a few hours and watching this. We will be posting all of Stephen's links for anybody who wants to find out more about his work. But anything you want to add, brother? Yeah, I, you know, it's just, I hear you saying as you were traveling around Mexico, I mean, one of my biggest inspirations in my life was in 2003, I drove two uh, vegetable oil powered school buses and a big truck from Berkeley, California down to Costa Rica. And it was my time driving through Mexico and just seeing the industrial agriculture and seeing the just industrial agricultural hell that I saw in Mexico and, and just seeing the, the extreme wealth and the extreme poverty. You know, you don't really feel that in Costa Rica. Costa Rica for Central America has like one of the larger middle classes. So I like what I experienced in Mexico or like even like the few times I've gone to Tulum or like those places you go to the beach and these fancy hotels. And then you go to like the where the people that the waiters live and stuff. And it just felt so far and so distant. And it like and it just felt so wrong, you know, so I, I really am trying to 
just open up my my listening and and opening up my my radar to really figuring out ways to to lessening that gap and and you know I think now for the first time in in my adult life you're really starting to see people starting to really connect with what's important you know and and clean food and 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 diverse genetic you know balance of of plants and food and ecosystems it's like that's what that's the real richness and uh and yeah i would just encourage all of you that are watching to continue to question everything question where your food is coming from and 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 question how you're being healed and question where that where that money's going and and how's it working and question question everything how what are you building your house of what are you putting to fuel your car how much are you driving how much are you flying it really feels like this has been such an incredible reality check for 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 the everyday people around the world you know that that have never really thought about about any of these concepts this is an opportunity those you know i'm assuming that most of the people that are watching this you know like the conventional people are watching the great reset the alternative people are watching the greater reset so i just want to invite all of you that are part of this greater reset to truly reset and to truly join together with your with your with your people and really figure out how to 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 create a whole new way a whole new way to 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 eat and a whole new way to live and a whole new way to love and i just want to challenge i want to invite everyone that's watching to my favorite challenge let's all starting right raise your hand if you're up for the challenge yeah yeah uh yeah let me see some hands out there oh cool all right all right john so um i want to just challenge everyone starting right now to be the nicest you've ever been imagine a world we are all in competition trying to be the nicest we've ever been imagine how the world would be thank you so much brother we appreciate you All right. Hey, it has been a, a beautiful week, Monday through Friday. We still aren't done. Sunday, January 31st is day six. If you hadn't heard, we did add a bonus day of solutions online on 12 p.m. Central on Sunday. We're going to have Foster Gamble of the Thrive Movement. We're going to have Dr. Will Tuttle. We're going to have uh, Jonathan Ramirez, another homestead permaculture farmer. Sunday is going to be kind of more of a holistic approach. Instead of all the different themes we've looked at over the past five days, this last day is going to bring the best of all of that into one day. So we'll have five more speakers on Sunday for free on thegreaterreset.org and all of the videos, everything will be uploaded for free because it's never been more important for this information to be out to people. We don't want to hold it behind a paywall. We don't want to charge you to get access to it. We want it to get out as quick as possible. And as I mentioned earlier, we have had some Spanish translations, a German translation of at least one of the talks. Uh, Lainey, who spoke the other day, her talk's already been translated to Spanish. So get it to you know the parents who need to learn about her work. So this is how we're going to build this international movement. And uh, I know, John, you wanted to share a few thoughts as well before as we start to wrap up. Well, we did have watch party picks. Should we show those? Yeah, those are fun and exciting to see so many people. Uh, we got a couple sent to us just today. And then we definitely want – I know some friends in Houston are watching right now, and they still haven't sent a watch party pick. This is to you. Dang. If you're in Houston, why haven't H-Town. you sent a watch party pick? What are you doing? What's happening? All right, this is homeschooling. Check this out. These kids are watching <laughs> The Greater Reset. Los Niños, watching Jack Spierko, having some sandwiches. That's great. 
And this is our Colorado Freedom family again. Shout out to them over in Colorado. Bruce B. So John and I are going to finish with some closing thoughts. You still have time. If you've got Greater Reset watch party pictures, send them into our Telegram or somewhere on our social media. John, I'll let you go ahead and, and uh, share some, some of your closing thoughts. Wow. Um, I'm just in awe of, of this event and this community and the speakers and all of the positive energy that people have experienced from this event. And, you know, I'm here solo. My lovely girlfriend was here earlier, but I can feel it even though I'm not around it in, you know, the digital thing. It's not ideal, but know that you're not alone, even if you don't have a community yet or if you're a lone wolf, as I like to call it. You're not alone. You can make those connections. You can make those connections digitally and use that as leverage and inspiration to feel more comfortable and confident to get out of your shell and to go meet some people. So I just want to share some, some self-development strategies that I have come across in my life, that I've applied in my life, that I've found great success with. Uh, and I want to apply that to what we're doing here with The Greater Reset. You know, with this COVID-19 stuff that's taken place and the government's response to it and the way people have shown up, it's really caused folks to take a good hard look in the mirror. And historically, this is going to be seen as a great period of transition, uh, as a catalyst for change. And we see those oligarchs, the predator class, the parasitic class, the conspirators, they are leveraging this. And in some ways, they've caused a lot of this with a problem reaction solution paradigm. But they are most definitely leveraging it to bring about a change that they want to see. And this presents an opportunity for us to bring about the changes that we want to see. Changes starting internally with ourselves radiating outward with our family, right? Because oftentimes when there's interpersonal struggles and there's harmed, struggling relationships, right? Usually it just takes one person to take that first step to align themselves with compassion, with love, with grace, right? And that'll radiate outwards to the family, to the community, right? They're your freedom cell community. And even people, when you see people at the grocery store, right? Like I'm not a big mask wearer. I like to, to smile to people, but I go into the situation with a smile, with an understanding that some people are afraid. Some people think differently than I do. And while I think a lot of it's a big con, I want to honor them. I don't want to be confrontational or adversarial. And that's the energy that I put out to the world. Therefore, that's the energy that I attract back. And we have such a powerful task at hand, and it's up to each and every one of us to take up the banner of change, of a greater reset, and to do everything we can to create a better world. So in order to do that, one of the very first steps that you can do is to make a decision that you are going to change the way you live and that you're going to help others to change the way that they live. And I'm a big believer in manifestation and the law of attraction. I'm also a fan of the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. And one of those habits is to begin with the end in mind. 
begin with the end in mind. The first one's to be proactive and to take control of your faculties and not to be reactive, to respond out of emotion or anger, but to be in control of your faculties, right? And then it says to begin with the end in mind. And what that means is to project and to envision what you want to be, the type of person you want to be, whether it's success, whether it's abundance, whether it's health, whether it's harmonious relationships with your children, you got to think about it. You got to meditate on it. You got to see it in your mind's eye before you can bring it about in reality. So that first step is to picture the ideal life that you want for yourself. Picture the ideal as activists. Let's picture the ideal society that we want to be a part of. And let's do everything we can to align with that. Once you have that ideal vision for yourself and your life and your society in mind, then you meditate on it, you focus on it, right? And then you become conscious through mindfulness, through meditation practice. Mindfulness is just being present in the moment, free of judgment and being aware of what's taking place, not playing out a program that many of us often do, right? And when you have that vision for what you want to be, and when you can practice mindfulness and get in tune in the present moment, then you could start to realize, okay, my actions aren't exactly aligning with this. I just pulled out my checkbook and saw that it says Chase Manhattan Bank. I'm not a big fan of the Rockefellers, and I know that this banking institution is causing great harm, right? Or you have a habit of picking up the kids after school and driving through the McDonald's drive through because it happens to be convenient. When you're visioning, who you want to be, the example you want to be for your kiddos, right? Where you want to spend your money, your energy, your value, then you could start to feel that kind of that discomfort because of the inconsistency, right? And so I think when if we do that, it's really going to greatly increase the chance that we're going to find change in our lives. I want to encourage each and every one of you to meditate on what your highest purpose, what your highest calling is, what your why is, right? For me, my why is my children in large part and leaving to them a better world than I inherited from previous generations. And so you align with that why, you align with that purpose, and then you set goals. Goals are huge, concrete. Write them down every morning. Work on goals with your Freedom Cell group. Work on goals with your family and have personal goals and be conscious of those and focus on those. The, the goals, when you fulfill these goals, will bring you into a better connection and be, bring you closer to your highest self and your ideal self, your ideal self, your ideal family relationships, and then it'll radiate outward to the community. We have a great opportunity ahead of us. We're either going to go as a society, as humanity, we're going to go down a very dark path, technocratic, dystopian nightmare, or we're finally going to see that this isn't the way, that this doesn't line up with our inherent sovereignty. And we're going to shift and we're all going to be leaders in our communities. We're all going to lead by example. We're all going to be the change that we want to see in the world. And we're going to do so with smiles on our faces welcoming and compassionate for our fellow human beings. And if enough of us do this, right, if we stay on that path, if we align with our purpose, if we focus on where it is we want to go, we can get there. And together with community, it's going to make it a heck of a lot easier. So I want to thank everyone that's tuned in. This has just been absolutely inspirational. And again, it's an activation. you got to take this stuff and apply it in your daily lives. And if you do, noise for John Bush. when we meet back up, I think we're all going to be a lot more free. Yeah. Hey, John. 
I appreciate your message so much, brother. I appreciate what you have to say. And I, I just, again, to those listening at home, I really hope you'll check out John's work, the work of everybody that we presented this week, the work of people we're presenting on Sunday. Uh, John has been such a huge influence on me, and, and so it's been great to just work and collaborate with him. I also, before I share a few thoughts, I do want to just one more time, can we get a round of applause for everybody who's been volunteering in all the different ways, our team online, our team here in person. It's just been amazing. We, we started this out, uh, I mean, just, I, we believe in transparency, right? That's what we're fighting for. And as John said, we have to be transparent. And I believe it is important to be transparent. You know, we started out with basically me fronting some of the, most of the costs and some other friends helping out so we could get a venue, so we could do some of the things. And Ramiro's working on the website and we need to spend money on this. And it just feels so important that we're like, let's just do it, do it, whatever we got to do. Let's keep the website running. Let's keep this moving. We're growing. We don't want to slow down. And this week we've, raised enough money to keep this thing going so that in May we're coming back, we're doing an even bigger event, we're going to continue to do regular events, we're going to launch a lot of new projects out of this because we're recognizing that people want solutions right now. And Stephen was kind of touching on it. COVID has been like this huge motivation. I mean, if anything, it's just motivated a lot of us to say, okay, maybe we should get our shit together now and start thinking about how we're going to organize and how we're going to take better care of ourselves and, and the lives that we're leading as John was talking about. So yeah, I just, I just want us to really think about that. This is an opportunity that we have to get activated, to spend the days and, and weeks and months after this getting organized. And we want to stay in touch with everybody. We want everybody to join the Freedom Cell Network to get plugged into what we're doing. We want to hear about your projects. We want you to come speak at our events so this can be a collaborative thing that we're building here. But rest assured, we are going to continue to do more events. And before I share a couple thoughts, we got a couple more pictures. Houston finally sent their watch party representing let down at first. Let's see Houston, where we got Houston. And then we had, oh, and then Karen also shared a picture of, uh, of our watch party. We got it? Here we go. Houston, all right. Shout out to Johnny. This is my good buddy, Johnny, you're seeing on the screen. And uh, thank you, everybody there who's holding it down and organizing. And Karen got a picture of some of our crowd here in Ziwa just to show a little bit of that on the screen. This was a couple of days ago. You can see we got some people gathered. We got some people here in person as well right now. And uh, yeah, that's what this is about. Let's get together. Let's organize. Let's be in person. Let's host watch parties. For those of you who are watching with your animals, with your, you know, your family, whatever, we appreciate that. The thoughts that I want to end with, guys, is just briefly, I don't, I don't want to keep anybody too late, but I just want us to, for, the, for another time, reemphasize the activation. Today we focused on some very tangible, practical tips for organizing community, for thinking of how we can make decisions and how we can build on the land and how to be respectful of the local communities. And there's so much more to explore. But I, I hope everybody, as we're leaving here tonight and those of you watching online or getting ready for bed or just waking up, to think about what did you take away from today? What did you take away from Monday when we talked about the counter economy? What did you take away on Tuesday when we talked about taking our health and education back to our hands? Wednesday when we're talking about reconnecting to nature and permaculture. Yesterday when we're talking about the, the way that the digital tools can both liberate or they can harm and how we can use them in ways that are positive. And then today, how we can get our communities organized and how we can build this. I mean, we put the energy into this because we think that this is the time, that if we don't act now, if we don't start really taking seriously what we are facing as a generation and as individuals, 
And as a, as a, you know, as an international global family of people who are connected, we had Johan from India, we've had people from all around the world. This is an international issue that we're dealing with these, these, all these various issues that affect all of us. So if you can hear my voice in this room, if you can hear my voice online, please just, let's just take a brief 30 seconds to just think about some of the things you heard this week. There's that mindfulness John was talking about. <laughs> Start thinking about who you heard speak and what they shared and what really stuck with you. I've seen some of you out here taking notes. That's always appreciated. It's very much appreciated, I know, by our speakers to see that people are paying attention and that they actually care. We want everybody to have a good time this evening or wherever they're going and this weekend. But we also want to make sure that what we've done in the last five days and what we're going to do again on Sunday, that it actually matters. When we meet again in May, we're holding another event, May 25th to the 28th. More details will be coming, of course. I would love to see many of these same faces again and new faces. And those of you who are watching online and come say, hey, you know what? I started Exceed Exchange at the first grader reset. And now since then, I have them all over my community or whatever growth yeah. is taking place. Or I planted seeds that night. What are the practical steps that we can really start taking? You know, we've tried to have some in-person workshops here. Start organizing workshops and skill shares in your community, documentary screenings, bring people together. You know, get get it, find a community garden, bring music and bring food, and I guarantee you people will show up. And that's the beginning of community. That's my you know activism tip that I've learned. The point <laughs> is that we have this opportunity now to to start creating change in our in our local communities and in our in our environments. And as John was saying, it appears that we're the ones. It appears that we're the leaders. I don't know if the re your whole family came. We got a few families, but most of us, it appears we're the one person that's coming from our community. We all have a lot of overlap, but we also have our own inner circles that we can influence. You can influence your parents and your friends and your family. They might not listen. They might think you're crazy, but I've been really trying to encourage people recently to go to the people you care about have a heartfelt conversation with them face-to-face -face if possible. If you got to send an email or text or phone call, do whatever you can do, but really say, mother, brother, father, sister, friend, I care about you. There's some troubling things going on in the world. Can we please talk about how to prepare ourselves for what might be coming? And just to be prepared for anything, right? Because this whole term, this whole idea of being prepared has been demonized a lot. They have doomsday preppers, right? And that's the sort of thing that comes to people's minds when you talk about prepping or being prepared. But in reality, every single one of our ancestors got us here by being prepared for the winter. You know, you have to think ahead, right? That's just a natural human trait for survival. But in our day and age when life is much easier and we don't have to be prepared so much, it's demonized as if it's this horrible thing. That's something we need to get past and we need to realize that all of our ancestors did a lot of work to make sure that we could survive. And I just want to make sure that the coming seven generations and beyond that are coming after me, that the world they're being born into is something worth living in. And I know that it's up to us to create that. I know that we are creating that right now. Thank you, guys. So to all of the children of the future, to the ones the young ones here with us now, the young ones that aren't born yet, and the ones we'll never meet, let's keep fighting, guys. Let's build the, the greater reset together. All right, John. Let's get out of here, man. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Derek. Shout out, everybody. Thank you, brother. Participated. This is only the beginning. This is it. This is the beginning. We'll see you guys on Sunday. Remember, you are powerful. You are beautiful. beautiful. You are free. free. Peace. Woo!
as we wake up to a new normal today and life is slowly grinding to a halt. Now masks are becoming the new normal. Americans are facing a new normal, one that may include losing their jobs, losing their income, and even losing their health insurance. I don't think we get back to normal. I think we get back or we, we, we get to a new normal. It's time to reject the new normal. Now is the historical moment, the time, not only to fight severe virus, but to shape the system. It's time to reject the Great Reset. It's time to support the People's Reset. It's time for the Greater Reset. From January 25th to the 29th, Journalists, activists, researchers, and advocates are hosting the Greater Reset Activation, a five-day event dedicated to offering an alternative to the World Economic Forum's top-down, centralized, authoritarian vision. Our desire is to help all people find community and liberty by providing practical steps and knowledge for co-creating a world that respects individual liberty, bodily autonomy, and choice. The Greater Reset is the world's collective response to the World Economic Forum's initiative, The Great Reset. We invite you to join us for five days of discussion about the diverse opportunities available for those who seek to live in harmony with humanity and the planet while respecting our innate freedom. Each day is dedicated to a different domain and provides solutions to the WEF's vision. Day one is dedicated to the Agora and decentralized economics. Tuesday the 26th will focus on health and education. Day three will focus on nature, permaculture, and regenerative agriculture. Thursday the 28th will highlight the liberating side of digital technology, including encryption, blockchain, and decentralized autonomous organizations. On Friday, January 29th, we will end the event by showcasing examples of intentional communities, freedom cells, and community organizing. Don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear from some of the most powerful speakers in the world with a focus on solutions. We encourage everyone to organize local watch parties in your area using freedomcells.org. Also, find out more about the Greater Getaway in-person event in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Visit thegreaterreset.org for more information.